0: Hey friends, this is Rob and welcome to question number 78. Is there no truth? Are there only stories? It's my conversation with TD Mishki, and it comes from the fact that I have had a problem doing this podcast over the past three years. And my problem is this. If you've been following along with this podcast, you know that I have been, like the whole the whole reason I was doing those daily Guinness episodes where I was drinking a Guinness every day and recording a podcast every day was with the hopes to discover what it means to live a curious life. When I decided I wanted to make the, to make the move to become a professional bassist, it was obvious what I needed to do. If I wanted to learn from somebody, of what I did is I moved to Minneapolis and studied under a professional bass player. I, I found someone who would teach me and mentor me as a bassist. His name is Ian Allison, and he lined me up. He set me down the trajectory to become, I mean, the legendary successful bassist that I've become in my lifetime.
1: Known <laughs> as Rob Morgan. He
0: set me down the path to become not just Rob Morgan, but internationally touring bassist and <laughs> music director, the Rob Morgan. It's I'm goofing around here, but seriously, think with me for a second. Anything you want to become in life, chances are you know where to go and look for it. When you want to become, when you set it in your mind to discover what it means to live a curious life, what it means to become a curious person, where the hell do you turn? I was look, I've been looking everywhere.
1: Did you try Google?
0: I tried Google. <laughs> how to become a professional curious person.
1: Where to find curious how people. D- how
0: does I? Professional curious uh, question. Now, I'm saying this. I'm being facetious. There's plenty of curious people in the world. But like genuinely, if, it were, if they were, if I were to find someone, who can I actually physically sit down with and learn from that I feel is just like the most curious person, then I discovered him. T.D. Mishki. He's a writer best known for his late night radio show here in the Twin Cities. Discovering T.D. Mischke was like the biggest breath of mental oxygen for me. And it's, it wasn't even his radio show that he no longer hosts now. He hosts his own podcast called The Mischke Road Show. That's and if, a good name. Yeah, it's a great name. And if you've been following along with this podcast, if you have any idea of uh, what gets me fired up as a human being, what I'm trying to do with the podcast, just listen to this snippet of one of his episodes recently and you'll understand why I was so pumped to have this conversation that I'm about to share with you
2: the true spirit of this road show is one of discovery discovering lives and experiences wildly unlike yours or mine diving headfirst into worlds foreign and worth marveling at That's the roadshow at its best. That's the thrill of this program when it's doing its job. And I would argue it also happens to be the thrill of life itself. For me, anyway. I want to know what I have not known before. Go where I have not gone before. Enter worlds that are as far removed from my own as possible. I'm bored with all that I know. I'm excited by what I don't.
1: Where do you live? In the city. Do you have a house? Apartment. On oh, no a rent? Rent. What do you do for a living?
2: Lots of things. Where's your office? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Do you have kids? No, I don't. How come? What's your record
0: for consecutive questions asked?
1: 38. <laughs> Why are you You <laughs> talking to me? What are you? A quiz, hot
2: shot. Did you expect me to talk?
0: For those of you joining us for the first time, my name is Rob Morgan, and for the past decade, I've been traveling the world as a bassist and music director. This is my podcast, where I sit down over drinks on location with intriguing people I've met to try and get past what it is they do to find out who they are and why they do it and what I can learn from them. I'm joined, as always, by my wife, Sarah.
1: You were world traveling. Now we just make bread. (laughs)
0: Uh, for those joining us for the first time, my name is Rob Morgan, uh, now currently bedroom dwelling,
1: pasta making,
0: bread eating, because let's be real, I haven't made any of this bread.
1: I was being nice and kind of extending my umbrella <laughs> tea over you, but you, you have made pasta. Anyway, I'm here. Sarah's here. Yes. Go on.
0: <laughs> Sarah, I'm so glad we don't have to deal with sponsors on this podcast or else I would have to tell everyone that we've all been spending a lot of time indoors. The days are getting darker and I don't know about you, but when I... Am fearing the ultimate world-ending pandemic that is COVID-19.
1: And an election year. Uh,
0: and an election year. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm reaching for, some, for something a little stronger.
1: Would that be a you glass, know, a frothy, foamy glass of mother's milk?
0: I am so thankful that I don't have to <laughs> tell you that Guinness <laughs> is the greatest beer known to mankind. But you say to me, Rob, I'm not a big fan of Guinness. I've tried Guinness before. You know, it's just a little bit too creamy and delectable for my premature taste buds. And I would say, wait there's more uh okay what do we have here we have Something guinness special. special edition beer release. this is guinness's imperial stout aged in bourbon barrels and for what i understand i'm pretty sure it's bullet bourbon barrels 10.3 percent
1: 10.3 percent okay Nom,
0: i intentionally did not read anything about this before we're trying this right now cheers hovey
1: cheers nope oh it's not hmm
0: Smells super chocolatey. It smells almost like a barley wine.
1: It does. It smells boozy.
0: What I find with beer oftentimes is that when a beer does uh, a new release of something or a new offering of beer, you can they have like a a kind of like a brewery overtone, like a a, like a palate note that I can trace. Like oh, this okay. There's a part of this that does remind me of Guinness. I get none of that in this. It almost reminds me of that like Goose Island bourbon county
1: yeah it tastes like an american bourbon barrel aged beer
0: i mean technically this is an american bourbon barrel aged beer because it's coming out of their baltimore brewery but if you want to check it out i recommend it how many morgans would you give it Hofi?
1: i give it four out of five morgans
0: i'm gonna give this five out of five morgans My highest possible rating.
1: Uh, Four out of five is my highest possible, (laughs) so well done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Keep striving, people. Uh, All right, if you want to check it out, Guinness Imperial Stout Aged in Bourbon Barrels is available anywhere your favorite beers can be found. Hey, since I'm doing plugs, I have had people reaching out to me saying, I love the cat logos. Like all the logos and imagery that we have on this podcast, do you have them on like t-shirts or merch? And I say, no, I gotta get my shit together and make that happen. Uh, Months go by. Someone asked me, do you have any merch? Do you have this on anything? Literally once a month, somebody is writing into me asking if we have some sort of merch that involves the cat logos for this podcast. We... finally have it we've got merch we have have the official curious podcast merch store is now available i man for those of you that have been curious about how you can show your love and your support you can do it in one of two ways one you could do us the massive favor of taking it takes less than sicky, (laughs) sicky You can do us the massive favor. Head over to iTunes, rate, comment, and subscribe on the podcast.
1: Five stars only. That
0: help us helps us out in a massive way, especially moving forward as we are booking higher profile guests. That is a massive thing.
1: Got to play the game, man.
0: It takes less than sixty seconds. That would be a massive help to us moving forward. If you would do that. The second way is head over to the merch store and check out if anything uh, catches your fancy. If you if you feel like you know I, this. Would this I feel like this would release my inner badass curious self for people to see head over to the CuriousPod.com slash store links to that are in the show notes below I would I mean even besides helping out support the podcast moving forward so Hofi I'm just pumped I'm freaking pumped about how this stuff looks
1: it's very cool.
0: The cat designs uh, that the team put together, uh, the imagery, how those are now implemented with merch is a perfect It's a for perfect blending uh, with the vibe and the feeling of this podcast. The only criteria that I had doing this merch was, I'm only going to make it, we're only going to put together, we're only going to sell it if it's something that I would use or wear or something that I like. And now, you're not
1: a big like logo guy it's all about a cool graphic image
0: yeah and they're badass, so turn out sweet. So check it out: thecuriouspod.com/store. That helps us a ton. Uh, let's dive right into the podcast. This is where it came about, Sarah. When I first started doing this podcast back in 2017, my buddies uh, Jasper and Amanda nephew, right when I first started out, they said, "Oh man, you if you, this is the route you're going down, you have to listen to this guy named T D Mishki. He has his own podcast called The Mishki Roadshow, and it is right." Up your alley. And I said, Screw you. You don't know me. Don't tell me how to live my life. Now I said, All right, I'll check it out. He is a writer first. That was his main thing. 1985 or 86. uh, Here in the Twin Cities, there was a guy named Don Vogel who had a radio show. And just about every day, Mishki would call in, and like not, they would never reveal his name, and he would have just like these hilarious, goofy bits as just like a caller calling in. People loved it so much that they brought him on for years to be Don Vogel's sidekick on his show. They loved uh, Mishki so much on as a sidekick of that show that they gave him his own radio show. He ended up having a 17-year career at KSTP. Uh, hosting his own show called The Mishki Broadcast. He was a writer at City Pages here in Minneapolis. Uh, The list goes on. This guys he's a composer, he's a musician. As soon as I was diving into his stuff, I knew I had to sit down with him and pick his brain. And that's what's so fun about this episode is because the conversation goes all over the place. It's deep, it's light, it's fun. It's every, like this conversation is the reason I set out to do these podcasts, to meet people like this, to learn from people like this. But even more so, it was really fun for me because there's like, Sarah, there's this um, like almost tradesman feelings, what it means to be a curious person, Uh, his approach to interviewing people, how he picks his guests.
1: Can't we just find out about it in the episode?
0: So I reached out to him with all this, saying, can we meet up? Are you comfortable if we keep our distance? And he said, yes, he was down. And I, as always, with all guests, I say, where do you want to do this at? We can do it anywhere. And so we responded with simply a longitude and latitude direction in the middle of the woods, just north of St. Paul, Minnesota, saying, go to this point. When you get there, you're going to see a small path leading off to the left, hike that in about a quarter of a mile, and then take your first left after the fallen elm tree. 50 yards from that point, you should see a bench, and that's where I'll meet you. A small hike, massively worth it, perfect fall day, and one of my favorite conversations that I've had on the podcast so far.
2: Let you see this.
0: Well. What do you What do you usually use to you do record? You got a pretty good setup
2: there. I'm fascinated by your setup.
0: Oh man! Um, well, yeah. What do you What do you use mine, when you're interviewing? Be,
2: you'll be shocked. Oh my gosh! Every single thing with me for six years has been out, done off the phone. Has
0: it? Yeah. Oh my gosh! Okay. And Which
2: I know is you know I know that this is better, but I uh, I have reasons for that. There's uh, I'm in too many situations where I can't I can't do this. I and uh, where the person I'm talking to won't function well with this, they need to forget they're even talking yes. to me for any kind of recorded. Because I never talk to anybody who has any practice being interviewed. Yeah, and it's helpful to just have a phone sitting on about five books by them that they don't even think about. Yes, not to mention that uh, you know they would they would knock it or they would push it away. I mean, I I just it wouldn't. I thought about it. And then in the beginning, I was in too many situations, like a cafe or at a table or in a taxi. Yep. it just it needed to be something that could be put on right away and boom, and you capture it. Yes, so I, just, I love that. But I have been aware of some nice equipment. You're the second podcaster to interview me, and I do always look at what you guys use. Yours looks pretty compact. They do like that. I haven't liked some of the... You know, when a guy brings a mixing board, I say, oh, okay, I would gosh. never be able to deal with that.
0: Okay, well, did you wear headphones even if you were doing no, the podcast thing? No. See, that's another level. People are bringing in... I know. I'm actually right there with you with the phone. I like that too as minimal and compact yeah. cuz there is this deal I mean you people think that the goal is to bring that like, the the best sounding like right. that's what like the end result you're going to have a better end result by cap having the best gear and bringing all like right. the headphones and everything and right. I've realized uh, that that can actually be a detriment. It's right. and it sounds like you're saying the same thing actually be a yeah. detriment to the conversation.
2: Yeah, it can affect the conversation and then also the The situations you're in don't always lend themselves to setting up, or um, even you know. I'm always, I'm often in weird spaces that just wouldn't. It's you know, you can almost you can jam a phone anywhere, you know. You can you can make a phone work almost anywhere. And then I also think that people forgive you in that it's not a radio show. You're not in that studio where you had that studio sound. Now, if you are doing that kind of a podcast, if you're not going to where people are and you're a Joe Rogan and you have a studio, well, then then they're not going to be forgiving. Then they want that studio sound. But it's already accepted with me that starting when I quit WCCO, I was going to be out in all sorts of weird environments that were going to be filled with all sorts of ambient sound in the background. um, So once people accept that, then it's... I remember listening to... uh, do you know the uh, serial podcast um, Shit Town? Oh, yes. You know, they yeah. often had situations where the audio was a little wonky yes. on that. But it was accepted because they're in these weird places and they're going to where these people are. And you. And I kind of wanted to go for that realism. Yes. So that also was why I liked the phone. And, uh, and, and there are trade-offs. I mean, there are definitely shows where you go, boy, it would be nice if the sound were better here. But it's just trade-offs. And it's also designed to make me like working and not have to think too much about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah so,
0: oh man, because you're saying this, and I think about uh, a, like a Larry King quote I heard once. That was he. He was saying that the best compliment anyone gave him uh, was that he made the microphones disappear when you were ah. talking to
2: him. I just watched a Larry King clip the other night. I wish I could tell you who the guy was. He was talking to. But one of the things, speaking of making the microphone disappear, one of the reasons it disappeared was I think he leaned over it into the guy's face, blocking the man from seeing anything. <laughs> I mean, he really yeah. would lean in close to people sometimes. Yes. And uncomfortably so, in my view. And, you know, with his his arms folded and kind of the shoulders up around his ears and leaning way in with those big glasses. And I'd watch that, and boy, that... You may be making them forget the mic, but they're not forgetting Larry King's yeah, he's four he's inches right there. from him. Yes.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I can't imagine. That would be so intimidating. You're just staring yeah, it was back. was a little weird.
2: Yeah. I just interviewed a, a guy recently who talked about... It was I was talking to him about a, a criminal in St. Paul who was given life in prison, a, a fairly famous criminal, got out in 83 and... This guy would run into him at parties. And one thing he said about this, this guy, this murderer, was that when he'd come up to talk to you at party, he got in really close. Mm. And I maybe can count on one hand how many people in my 58 years on this earth have ever wanted to talk that way. That's not a natural way to want to talk. We all have a natural space we give people. But every now and then there is somebody... And you don't know what that's about. Is that intimidation? Is it they don't understand boundaries? Is it they feel the intimacy will be improved? I don't know what it is. Are they just unaware of it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he was describing it, and I thought of that when I saw Larry moving in on this guy. I thought... (laughs) Wow, I wonder if that's calculated. I (laughs) didn't know.
0: You get to the point where those big shoulders are going up almost above his head, and he just
2: gets that intense,
0: just laser-focused
2: lean-in. It's funny, too, because when I think of Larry King, I always used to sit up late at night and listen to him as a radio guy. And even today, knowing that his legacy is a television interviewer, I I still think of him as that late-night radio guy I used to listen to when I was a young adult. And uh, and there it was just the voice, the disembodied mm. voice, the great voice. You didn't need to see him. You didn't want to see him. You didn't know what he looked like. I didn't know what he looked like. And uh, it was a good late night voice. It was a good yes. voice for late night.
0: With video versus radio, that's been something on my mind a ton because... So I've been doing this for... Maybe about three years. Okay. This, everything's on YouTube. Video is, yeah. everything is such a video deal. And yeah. everybody's like, you get so much, you can have content for that or social media or whatever it is. And I'm just so torn with that. I'd love to hear your thoughts because, on one hand, yes, the video is cool if someone's watching on that medium and they get a, another advantage of feeling like they're there. Right. But I feel like having a camera set up right. is one more
2: thing where,
0: you would sense that in a conversation. Well, I don't know if you've thought about that with your the your podcast and the radio and like the
2: yeah. When I video. was first in radio, one of the things I learned from other radio people and then my own experience with it is that it was the most intimate medium. And if you sat back and thought about that, you would say, "Well, then there must be something about audio by itself because." Why wouldn't television be more intimate? Why wouldn't a face looking into the camera be more intimate? But it wasn't. It was the human voice by that speaker and your ear and and nothing else. Nothing else in the way. No distraction of is that guy fat or thin. No distraction of is is she pretty or not. No distraction of... of oh, she's got something below her eye, I wonder if someone can see that and help her out there, I brush that out of the way. The, there's something about just sound that if it truly is adding to the intimacy, I don't want to distract from that with video. So that's, that's the highfalutin answer. There's also the answer that video is one Additional skill than you have to learn, yeah. So I didn't. Yeah. I, I've never had the skill there that I do in audio, and so it's it's easier for me to work just with audio. and And lastly, audio by itself, just by itself, has been a lifelong uh, learning process for me. There are five senses. I work with just the one. What you hear through that speaker, and by, my, by the end of my lifetime, I will not have figured out all the things you need to know to do that really, really well. So why add video? Why add new complexities? Why add new layers? There's a, a final cheating kind of a thing that I throw out when people ask me about this, and that is that when I was doing a radio show, I always said to myself, If the show wasn't that good that night, the person still got some laundry done. They still got that project finished in their workroom. They still got that trip covered from 30 miles this side of town to 30 miles that other side of town. I didn't completely waste their time. Radio and podcasting, when it's audio podcasting, allows people to do other things and listen. And so I always felt good about that because when you rope someone into a movie theater for three hours, you are not allowing them to do one other thing, and you had better not waste their time. Oh, so there was something freeing to me about saying, that guy was walking his dog with a headset. He had to walk the dog anyway. <laughs> so yes. what if the show wasn't an A+. Yes. Plus?
0: <laughs> yes. And, oh man, That's so good. Oh, man, I love that so much. I love... I guess I haven't thought about that, about the narrowing down. Like, you have all these senses. I'm, I'm This is focusing yeah. on one of them. Right. And let's like fine-tune it.
2: Oh, I, and I and like think that. about this. This is another one to throw out. So I've heard everything from 90 to 78% of communication is visual. So now you have quite a handicap. You are trying to communicate with only audio... And it's known that the majority of communication is visual. So now it's even more fun in a way to. Words matter, specific words matter, inflection matters, delivery matters, the tone in your voice matters because you got to deliver a message without that video. And that's a real handicap and has shown to be in a lot of uh, communication studies. So that also became kind of a fun challenge and helped me to realize the importance of this word over over that word. I'll tell you a guy who oh, played a lot with that. Yeah. Carlin was always, George Carlin yeah. was always a big fan of the words he used. He was very careful about the words he used. He, whenever you heard him, you knew he chose this word over another word purposefully and that he thought about that other word for quite a while and went with this word for a reason. He just loved words. And i it's interesting because I started out listening to him in audio only. I used to, when I was a little kid, I got his records. Oh, yeah. I never would see him. I'd just mm-hmm. get his records. He was probably the first guy that I really found myself... That wasn't radio, but it was just like it. Lying in the dark with the record on, listening to AM-FM. Interestingly, the album I loved was AM-FM. That's what he called yeah. it. I heard that when I was about seven or eight years old, and it uh, it had a profound effect on me then. I, I feel really connected to that thought of... Being a kid,
0: sitting with the radio, like dialing through radio stations, listening to late night stuff. I don't know why it was, even as a kid, I didn't have, I wasn't driving uh, or had like an overnight job. But there's something about nighttime where like maybe even as I'm saying this right now, I'm thinking it's dark. All your other senses are naturally turning off. Right. And you can still hear things. And so that like laser focus and that you're like of you listening to that George Carlin album
2: yeah
0: uh it's yeah. fascinating I, I just wonder how much of that like that narrowing down of the senses played a factor in your subconscious to now have a a
2: love or a care or respect for that
0: i had a, i had a buddy
2: in in my neighborhood who many many years later i lost touch with him. He ended up working uh as a psychologist at united and uh my sister-in-law was working there and ran into him and they made the connection together that they both knew me. And uh, he said, oh, uh, I have something for your brother-in-law. Here's a tape he and I made in third grade, cassette tape, and I had forgotten about it. And she brought it over and I listened to it and I said, son of a gun, I'm doing a radio show with that kid. I didn't remember that I had an interest in it then and I certainly didn't think about radio. I thought about writing when I was a kid. My dad ran a newspaper, so I wanted to be a writer, and I had a little newspaper in my house called Tom's Super One. A newspaper
0: in your house for the 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 family members? There were
2: 10 of us around the table at dinner, and I'd pass it out that day's edition. (laughs) (laughs) and I would be writing uh, things like uh, Cassius Clay changed his name to Muhammad Ali, You know, and I'd be misspelling everything and trying to analyze why he would do that, and um, other stories like that that I would just find. But I wanted to be a writer, not a radio guy. I didn't really have a lot of respect for the spoken word. I had respect for the written word, but doggone it, there was that tape of me doing it. And then I have to also recall even though i tell people all the time i never wanted to get into radio that i ran around europe for a while when i was 19 with a tape recorder a handheld tape recorder going up and asking people absurd questions just to get their response you know i'd go up to some guy walking down the street in london and say where does a guy get some linoleum around here? I'm having a dinner party tonight. <laughs> and, you know, the guy... <laughs> totally
0: would, straight, too. Yeah, so straight fish. Oh, you got to deliver straight. straight. Oh, yeah.
2: The guy would say, linoleum for a dinner party. And then... <laughs> but then he'd even come up with why I needed it, because I didn't know why I needed it. I didn't yeah. have an answer. He said, you mean to put on the floor so the people on the floor... In the flat below, don't hear you walking around. Yes, yes, of course. Exactly. Else. Yeah. Well, then you need to go to an ironmonger. And that was what they called their hardware stores, iron mongers. And that alone, just to hear that word, made it worth it. Or I'd go up to somebody and say, do you know where Agatha's Crunch and Curl is? And they'd say, Agatha's Crunch and Curl? What's that? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm just supposed to meet a guy there. Agatha's Crunch and Curl? No idea? Or I'd go up to somebody and I'd say... Uh, Where's the, North, where, where's the North Brothers Family Bowling Center and Pancake House? And everybody thought, he's a dim-witted American. He doesn't, he's a nice enough guy. We ought to help him. He's probably mentally challenged. And they were very kind always. And I'd record what they have to say. And then I'd send the tapes home to my buddies to listen to for entertainment. Now... <laughs> That was not a radio show, but yeah. that was a precursor to a lot of what the Mishki broadcast would become. But again, the only time I ever learned about talk radio as a viable medium that would ever have room for me or that, ever, that I'd ever want to be a part of was when my brother grabbed me one day and said, Forget FM, man. Do you know what's going on over at AM? I said, no. Old people stuff? He goes, no. Yeah. Check out this. And he put on Don Vogel. And I had never heard anything like that before, and I never went back to FM after that. Yeah. Uh, Simultaneously, the music world was leaving me behind a little bit in terms of my music taste, so it was easy to switch over to non-music. And then, secondly, Vogel was doing something with radio that I didn't know you could do. I just didn't know that was an option. And and talk radio—these are the rules. You're not fitting into the boxes that I've i thought that you had to fit into. Yeah, and Talk radio was taken off then Because AM was needing something new to survive and, uh, and they were figuring out Okay, FM, you do that great music stuff And we'll do talk And it was a wonderful agreement for a while It's over yeah. now But it was a great agreement for many years So that's how it happened It was more I like to have fun I screwed around a lot For serious stuff I thought I'd be a writer And then Radio came along and provided this perfect playground for a career. I I do think of it as kind of a playground. It was sort of like a uh, Saturday morning. You're running out of the house. You have the whole day to yourself, and you can do anything you want. That was what radio was. You come into the studio, and you can do anything you want. There were no, for me, there were no rules. And while the Hubbards would say, "Mishki, there were rules, you just broke (laughs) them. You
0: just weren't paying attention. I would
2: argue you knew I was breaking them, you'd hear me break them, and you let me break them, that sounds a lot like no rules.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounds a lot more like suggestions at this point.
2: Yeah, I think what they would have said was, thank God you were late night, because had you moved a little little earlier into the day, we would have put the clamps down, and they eventually did. <laughs> when, I, when I did something that I did at night, five, six, seven times a week, when I did it during the day, I ended up getting fired. So... It probably had a lot to do with nighttime radio and the freedom of that and the fact that most of the Hubbards were asleep at that hour. That, it's interesting you mentioned,
0: I'm, oh man. your analogy of a playground is really fascinating to me because I use that analogy all the time when I am working as a music director with artists. Mm-hmm. My whole deal is that I just believe your job is to build a playground. Yeah. That's what rehearsals are for and songwriting is for. Right. And then when you, the second you get on stage, the playground's already built. Your only job is to have fun and go play on it.
2: Right, right. And
0: so there's this obvious, with music for me, there's, there's then this obvious, we're focused now, we're crafting something, and then walk on stage and now this is different. We should, we should know what we're playing on and we should have the freedom to be in the moment.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: But with you and radio, what does building a playground look like for you? Like before you hit record, is there any building of the playground? Or is it just a tr- full-on trust that I'm going to hit record and I just trust myself that this, was, whatever comes out is going to come out? It,
2: it was both and. So in other words, I would prep all day for a radio show. Uh, most of the time, I had many, many days, and listeners back then will tell you this, where I burned out, and I would come to the air with nothing, literally with nothing, and I would start the show saying, I have nothing, people could see I was a little down, uh, the energy wasn't great, and I was perfectly willing to let several minutes of dead air go by if no one was going to call I just didn't have anything. That's not anything I would advise people to do, but sometimes those shows turned out rather magical. In general, I would prep all day, and I would come in with enough where I could do a show without anybody calling, which is, in essence, a two-hour monologue. I could do bits and songs and poems and riffs, and I could, I could take everybody through... Both hours just fine. But I always thought of that preparation as like a big net that you bring to a tightrope walk. If you need it, it's there. But what you ideally would like to do is to uh, not need it and get on the tightrope and go where the audience realizes you didn't plan on going because how could you plan on this call And how could you plan on this caller taking you down this road? And how could you plan on the three other calls that came because of that call? And how could you plan on the fact that that made you now want to call a small town in southern Nevada because of that third caller? And now where are you? You're off in the weeds somewhere, and you don't know where this radio show's going. Meanwhile, that full day of prep is sitting there in a pile next to me, and I never got to it. But it was there like a net if I needed it. And that allowed you to play on both sides. Yes. The side of total freedom and spontaneity and improvisation and the side of preparation, which, by the way, the preparation side, if I do say so myself, was wonderful. I mean, that stuff was also going to be great. Had I not taken these people to this small town in southern Nevada, there was a great show on that pile, on that I was ready. I worked from 9 in the morning until... Eight at night on that show, and I was ready. Uh, really? Yeah.
0: Nine in the morning to eight at night, just put it, were just following we, we curiosity? Or
2: I worked I was typing. I was typing on an old Underwood. I would type up my show. I would type up my ideas. I would type up my songs, my riffs, and then it was all designed to make it sound like everything was off the cuff. You just, you. you it, it was almost like um, theater where, the actors learn their lines and then they get up on stage. And I guess I would use the comparison to a Christopher Guest mm. film where he gives his actors a lot of improvisational leeway, but you're still working with a script. So mm. I would do that a lot. I was, here's what happened to me in radio. I watched 27 on air people get fired just at KSTP alone. So I realized okay, there is a terrifying thing waiting for most of us called getting fired. And I figured there's only one way to avoid being one of those 27, and that's outwork everybody. And I saw a couple other guys work really hard who also didn't get fired. But it was something that became clear. Work, and you won't get fired. Treat radio like it's really just two hours a day, and golf the rest of the day, and you'll be out of work. Oh, my gosh. You can't treat it that way. You have to treat it like a full-time job or more. You know, I used to really understand when I'd hear why Leno didn't ever want to have a kid. Because where would there have been time for a kid? I really understood what when Letterman would start at four in the morning and then, you know, finish and then listen to the show again and, re, and have about four hours downtime a day before he went to sleep and really no life outside of that. I would say to myself, man, at that level, of course. Because at my little AM show in Flyoverland, I... I felt that same kind of sense of, you 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 got to just keep working or one day this will all be gone. Yeah. You'll pull the rug out from under you and you'll be working at color tile. And you'll be saying to yourself, wow, I remember this one job that didn't feel like a job. And I didn't want to ever have that. So I got 20 years out of it and I ended up walking away of, of my own volition. I mean, I i burned out. Of course, I burned out other times during that stretch, I had uh, major depressive bouts in my mid thirties, mid forties. Not so much after fifty anymore. Late forties was kind of the end of it. But I would take three months, <laughs> I would take three months off work. I'd take a month off here. Yes. I was hospitalized, you know, and then I'd go back. And uh, it was just, it wasn't the healthiest job in the world. I will say this: I was never wildly physically healthy during my years mm. on the air. I got really healthy, magically, mysteriously, when I quit. Something <laughs> I about that, that was, job yeah. wasn't uh, wasn't that healthy. And and a show could always get better. That's the thing. Oh, they, yes. It isn't like um, there's no end to it. Taking two pieces, uh, taking a, a two by four, and attaching it to something, and then saying, "Well, I don't care how many hours you put on, you put in. That is as good as that attachment is it ever is. going to be." It's not like that with a you radio know? show. You could sit back some days and say, it could have been better, but there's only so many hours in a day. And then every now and then, every now and then, there would be a show that you actually couldn't have done it better. A series of ingredients, some you controlled, some you did not, came together. And the magic was such that I don't even think thinking about it a little more would have helped. It simply was <laughs> yeah. as good as you could have pulled off and those oh. were the best and you live to remember those days and i've forgotten all the other ones <laughs> okay i feel like
0: you you either as a person you fall into when it comes to motivation and uh, what motivates you to like push into that or lean into the work and make it better and fine-tune that last that like last tightening of the screw in whatever you're working on creatively yeah i find people are typically either it's the bad shows that fuel them that's the memory of those bad oh, ones yeah, or it's the memory of the wins like oh it's been that was so magical i'm chasing that magic
2: yeah it's Would a you bad show for me okay that's that, what I was that was one that was the greatest thing about doing it nightly it was so wonderful because you finish a show and it's horrible and you know in 24 hours, all you got to do is pull off a great show and you oh. can forget about it. You don't have to wait that long. So the, one day you had to wait and you were always going to hit a home run the next night. You were never going to do two bad shows in a row. Barbara Carlson told me, the old, uh, now uh, no longer with us, but the old talk host at KSTP, she said one time, you're going to do a couple of bad shows a week. I said, What? I'd only do five a week. She goes, yeah, a couple of them won't be so good. And you got to realize there's no way around that. And I guess what I ended up realizing was probably a better way for her to have said it was a couple of bad hours. Mm. Uh, Say you did a two-hour show, so that's 10 hours of radio. A couple hours that week were always going to be pretty bad. And if you could accept that. And when you got them, go, oh, good, got that out of the way, instead of saying, why can't I get this down? I've been working at this for five years. It was better just to realize you're a human being and that any kind of perfection would be rather impossible that that you could say, oh, good, I got that bad show, that bad hour behind me. I bet tomorrow night, because of that, is going to be a killer show. And it always was. It always was.
0: Oh, my gosh, you are reading my mail right now but the only difference is i've never i mean besides man down um yeah what was that something we've we've got things falling from the trees wow uh the only difference is for me that i'm thinking about because i'm selfishly putting myself in your story uh but i'm thinking about like when i'm on a tour in the past uh when i did that then i could get in that mode where okay yeah, there's a bad, there's a rough night, but there's going to be the next night because right. it's booked and you're on it. Right. But now for me, music isn't like that. Uh, and for me, I don't have like a, a nightly radio show. So for me, if I do something like this, right, and it's bad, I just sink straight into my head. Or if I have a bad gig, with everything so spread out like it is, it yeah. just will last me right. so long. And then I get ruminating and I start thinking like, maybe I shouldn't be doing. Maybe I've been I've been doing this for couple years now maybe I shouldn't be doing this at all maybe it's not worth it like you know all those like the dark thoughts like that uh, the resistance almost that Stephen Pressfield calls it like that is constantly trying to pull you from moving
2: forward and keep doing it and keeping it. So here's a question for you how do you know when that voice is not a wise sage versus just annoying doubts and ruminations that have to do with people criticizing you when you were five years old. I mean, there, there's a trick, I think, in life to um, having that wonderful internal editor that knows, you know, you're not going to be a major league ball player, Tommy. Uh, you're not, you, don't, you don't have it. You don't have it. Give up. You don't have it. And move in another direction and you'll have a lovely life. You'll find a new passion. How do you know when that voice isn't just a really wonderful guide versus... Oh boy! Who's that sourpuss pus raining I'm? I'm not going to listen to him. I yes. am too going to be a major league ball player. Yeah, because then you're going to wa- waste the next five years, and you're still not going to be a major league ball yes. player. So and you'll be unhappy, and yeah I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but there is such a thing as ignoring a lot of those self-doubt thoughts, but I don't know that we want to live with a voice that says, "Golly or something else. Keep at it." you're on your way to stardom. (laughs) I mean, what did Woody Guthrie name his book, Bound for Glory? You know, I don't know that we all can call our our autobiography that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Uh, that is, yeah, kind of like the balance between, like, you have to have to be someone creating something and putting something out there, whether it's like a a radio show where you're focusing on just audio. There has to be something in... Your brain that's just enough that pulls you over to say what I, my voice, what I have to say right now is right. W- matters and is worth someone's time,
2: right? It takes a certain amount of hubris. I mean, kind, yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. I'm actually going through that right now with music. I write songs, yeah, and have for a long time, and I've always felt that I'm <laughs> on this side, just this side of that place where you need to be to do something with those songs. In other words, it's not that fun to write a song if you're not going to play it. And it's not that fun to play a song if you're just going to play it to yourself in the basement. You know, Guy Clark said a song isn't finished until you play it for someone. So if the idea is that you eventually have to play it for someone then you have to marry two things. Not only you have to write the song well, but you have to deliver it well or get it to someone who delivers it well. One of the two. Yeah. And if you trade away your delivering of the song to someone else, you are trading away something dear. That, that sensation of a song moving through you that you created has a reward to it that you will never feel when it's moving through someone else's body and the instrument being played by someone else. You will surrender that. And the best analogy I can give is if a playwright is a Sam Shepard, he knows he not only can write this, he could go perform it. He could be that guy. Mm. And what a thrill to have known who this character is so well he came out of you and and you're going to go up on stage and embody him and you know how to do it better than anybody because this guy was born out of your heart you cut off having to translate that to someone else all those things and you get the fulfillment of the you, yes. whole picture whereas yeah. if you're someone else uh you know I I don't just your average playwright who doesn't act you you hand that off to an actor, and you have to let go, and you have to let that happen. And I'm sure for a lot of playwrights, because that's so typical, to write it and let someone else act, that's not as hard as a songwriter. You know, take Jimmy, is it Jimmy Webb who wrote uh, Wichita Lineman? But he gives it to Glenn Campbell, and Glenn Campbell makes a hit out of it. Now, Jimmy Jimmy Webb isn't as good as Glenn Campbell. He's a better songwriter, but he's yeah. not as good at delivering a song. And But he goes on in his life to routinely, regularly deliver that song, never puts it where Campbell did. But he wasn't going to let go of his song. Yeah. He wasn't going to say, well, screw it, I'm, I'm not a performer, I'm a songwriter. And I could go on and on with guys. I mean, Leonard Cohen, I will argue... Uh, was was a better man the day he handed jennifer warrens his stuff and she delivered famous blue raincoat her album singing his songs and he dropped back i think those songs worked in a way he could have never made them work but he sure as hell wasn't going to stop delivering him delivering them himself yeah uh he couldn't let go and uh I think there are a lot of guys out there who should let go, and I've often thought I should, should, let, go. should let go. Should oh should. Yeah. should yeah the same way you see a quarterback on Sunday and say, "You're 44. It's over. Get the hell off the field. Let some young guys take over." I'm still loving this though. I know, but yeah. we're not. Yeah, and it's about us. You know, it's really ultimately about the other people. Yeah, but at what
0: point do you say, "Screw the other people"? This is my life, and I, I love. And doing I would this. argue
2: that there's no artist whoever said that who was being anything but full of shit because there is no such thing as art that you do for yourself. And even the guys you know who sit in a little room from 20 to 80 and then die and they find them later and their art is all there and then it's shown to the world, that was the plan. They knew that. They knew damn well they would die and somebody would walk into this room and after hauling their body out of there would say, my God, look at what he's done. I refuse to believe any of these guys, and some of the greats have said it. The biggest bunch of bullshit a guy like Bob Dylan has ever delivered was he doesn't care what anybody else thinks. He's cared from the beginning. I mean, that guy has that his ego was the uh, size of Texas, yes. and uh, and it's okay. So is the so, such is the case with the rest of us. You. Are creating something, and like Walt Whitman said in that poem, where he used the analogy of the spider shooting out those, what does a spider shoot out? Like the web? The, yeah, the, the, the individual oh, yes. strands that oh, yes, yes, cause yes, yeah, something, yeah. and they have little okay. suction things on them, and you, <laughs> he, he wrote a poem about the artist sends those out, and you hope they latch somewhere, but you don't know if they will or where they will, but your life is sending these out praying to God oh. that a few people will connect and that you'll have that connection and uh i know there are people out there who say you know i just have to write i just have to write i I can't not write so i'm going to write whether or not anybody reads it or doesn't read it to that i say i get that i get that but don't tell me that you'd be just as happy if no one read it i don't believe you Human life is about connection, yes. and art is about communication. End of story.
0: Even right there, even t- you say communication, and I think about at the beginning of this. We're talking about how your passion for uh, words and language, and find that the right word for things. And here you are. What is that? What's the name of that thing? The spider shoots out. I'm like uh, web. <laughs> You're like, no, no, <laughs> he's got, up, some got some weird word for it. Uh, some weird word. Uh, yes. Okay. So then we're when you're talking about getting on air, right. And being fine with the dead space, right. right. Like for some reason, stepping up and hitting record on air to me almost feels like when you're talking about it, like an analogy for life, right? Like this, at some point you're going to have good days and bad days, good days, good projects, right. Right. bad projects. And you are, when you, especially when you're talking about uh dead air and you're, you'd be fine with that. If nobody called in, right. I'd be fine with the, the dead air thing that's kind of is making me think of like, what about the dead air seasons of life in yeah. your career? Like where you're between like this really, you're, you're, you're hoping, you're hoping that that web shot out and it's stuck to something right. or something, that it's gonna land on the next thing you're supposed to focus on or create. Right. But whereas in you, in your radio, sitting in front of a microphone, you have seem to have this, to me, this confidence like yeah, I'm fine. If it hits the dead air, whether that comes from being burnt out or it comes from just confident cuz you've done it so many
2: times before. Well, the, the, it's it's the confidence that the human spectacle is is something people appreciate and the spectacle of my failure is something to appreciate. How many people oh. watched <laughs> Evil Knievel... Yes. To watch him succeed. That. Not as many as watch yeah. to watch him crash. Yeah. I'll tell you that. And without you, you poll my listeners and ask how many of you were in love with the shows where I was crashing and burning, where I didn't have <laughs> anything. And you're sitting there watching the spectacle of human failure. Um, so I was aware, as Letterman always used to say, just don't be dull. You know, so just don't be dull. Don't come on the air and say to yourself... I know what I'll do. I'll fool them. I won't say I don't have anything, and I won't just have dead air and show my complete lack of preparation today. I'll um, I'll say capital punishment, gun control, the legalization of drugs and abortion. Call with your opinions. I'll be a bore. (laughs) I'll be a flaming bore instead of something real and human. So I always liked going for all of it, either... Nailing it and sailing and flying high and having people go that Mishki, he's no idiot. Look at he's got he's got a little something on the ball. Yep. Or it's that Mishki. I would not want to be him tonight. I am so glad that I work at IKEA, because uh, <laughs> yes. this guy is publicly embarrassing himself. Yes. And that's the game. The game yeah. is you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to publicly embarrass yourself. It, it, that's you know oh. and i have the greatest admiration for stand up comics because you are never more naked than there oh, than there it is i the could at least naked. hide yes. because it no video i could yeah. at least physically hide yeah but they're up there all alone standing there and uh you, you know it's no the, wonder you half see every of them bead are, of sweat yeah. coming down their face yeah i was going to say it's no Listen, wonder half of them but i i want to amend that uh, it's no wonder 90 percent of them are psychologically fucked up yeah uh you know it's it's a cliche uh but it's not natural to want to do what i did for a living all the guys who did what i did for a living where i worked all of them were messed up yeah Uh, there wasn't a healthy Psychologically healthy soul in the building. <laughs> yeah. And you can go back and you can find out exactly why they ended up doing what they were doing. Their dad never said they loved them, their mom never paid any attention to them. You can find the reasons. It's not it's not a normal thing to do. I mean what is with all the alcoholism in uh in in entertainment and media oh, yeah. And it's so, the only job where you show up and they
0: give you alcohol. Oh you yeah, you show up to your
2: job. Yeah, I used to. Uh, I used to do a show with Vo- we, Vogel, and I would go to bars and do shows and drink during the show. And our <laughs> boss would be out the aud- in the audience, going, "Well, it's a- they're not doing another margarita, are they?" And, but it was. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> those 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 wild days, the wild wild west days of radio, uh. where oh my lord, the things we did and got away with, and. Uh.
0: And it's kind of what you're saying with the uh, the spectacle of it. I mean, it's why it all it all continues. It just changes what it looks like. It's the reason why fail videos are so popular on YouTube. Yeah, Is yeah. because people love it. it's, yeah. a, it's it's if it's not happening to you, then it's comedy, right, in, right? Unless it's happening to you, and that's the funny thing to watch someone fall on the skateboard because oh that sucks. You broke your leg. Next video, I'm totally fine. And I got to, at least I'm not that person in the hospital.
2: I have a friend who actually said to me one day, I've known him since I was seven years old, and he said, I have a rule. If you want to be my friend, I got to see very quickly in our interaction your vulnerability. And if you don't offer any, see you later. Oh. So he right away has to see that window in. They have to reveal their weakness pretty early on or he's not up for a friendship. So it ties in a little bit with what you with what you were talking about, and there's something about connection to weakness and failure that works very quickly for human beings that doesn't work when you're, um, you know, you can watch on Sunday as some guy does some incredible run on a field and admire it, but it won't be till, you know, he's got a, torn achilles and is crying in the locker room that you'll truly connect to him as a human being as a person so yes uh there's there's something to, there's something to that whole failure thing how I, did you not to like interrupt but i yeah.
0: have to know like how did you what did it take for you to stumble on that uh, that truth in your life. All like, my,
2: all my great lessons in life came from uh, uh, clinical depression. So when you play out your life and go through clinical depression at a time, by the way, when I, when I, when it hit me, nobody talked about this stuff, this stuff you got, you go back to uh, see, uh, let me see what year we're talking. You got to go back to the early nineties. No, but this wasn't out there being talked about. Hmm. You wouldn't have been able to find, you know, there was no Ken Barlow coming out with, bipolar. There was no, uh, this was a, a hidden kind of stigmatized thing. And my whole deal was everything. uh, The rule on radio is everything's up for inspection. Every, every ass. In fact, uh, I was going to say every aspect of your life, but Vogel used to tell me I'm more intimate with people on the show than I am with my wife at home. I'm more Mm -hmm. open and honest on this show than I am with my wife at home. He says, and there's something about not seeing them sitting in that little room, sort of feeling like you're talking to yourself that allows you to reveal everything in a way that you don't when you're at the bar with your friends. So once the depression thing hit, that just became more fodder and more things to talk about. It'd be written about in the paper. Mishki out again for three months. What's wrong (laughs) with that fucker? Uh, And so, but all my great lessons were learned from the vulnerability of those years where you just realize, A wow, as soon as you suffer, really deeply suffer, you think about all the people in the world suffering and feeling anything like what you have or worse. And obviously there's much worse. Someone losing their child, anything like that. And you realize, wow, there is a boatload of suffering out there because up until I was 36 years old, I hadn't had much real suffering. And until you have just that, that moment of where you are feeling like any more and I'm checking out, mm-hmm. that's when you're born in my, in my mind. That's when you're born. I was in an emergency room one time. Again, absolutely nothing wrong with me, but I had 19 physical symptoms. Uh, they hadn't yet figured out that all of this was somatic. All of this was um, psychosomatic. Yeah. And uh, the doctor said, you know, I think you might just have depression. And he says, let me tell you something. I don't trust anybody who goes from early adulthood to later adulthood without depression. I don't trust anybody who doesn't go through that crucible. And that was such a bizarre line to That's me. So he bizarre. seemed to yeah. be implying that it was it was the gate you have to go through from your younger years to your older years to some degree. He didn't say you had to have my catatonic state. Oh, yeah. But you do have to go through something that is a dark night of the soul. So I came to appreciate that and have passed on to my boys that uh, get ready. One day in some way, shape, or form it's going to come and rather than lament it, embrace it, learn from it, and accept that no one gets out without it. You know, This isn't something that
0: means the system's broken. This is system's part not of the broken. system. Yeah, it, it means the system's the working
2: just fine. Near-death experiences, 99% of the time, what do people report when they come back? The suffering of their life was a gift. The suffering was a gift they failed to see as a gift. If you actually thought of that, and it's very hard in the moment to think of it, but you can shortly after and treat it as something that you're going to think back on fondly, as something that gave you all sorts of rewards you will you will have a much better life than if you sit around going, you know, I'd had a good run if it wasn't for that car accident in 1974 where I lost my left, left leg. Kevin Kling, the great playwright Kevin Kling, told me that uh, with all the people with disabilities he works with, he was the only one that ever struggled to say, I wouldn't give it up. Mm. He eventually told me he has, for those who don't know, he has, he can't use either of his arms and he lives a life without one, a birth defect and the other from a motorcycle accident. And so he has, he can't use his arms and his life. If you watch him just try to turn a knob on a door is a nightmare. Um, although he would say it's not a nightmare. He says during, on his best days, he would not request two working arms. And he really? worked, and he says all the rest of the people he works with, he works with a whole bunch of people in theater who have dis- different, disabi- different uh, disabilities, all of them claim they're their superpowers. And they say they would never give them up. They would never go back. They would never uh, trade their disability away. And when you realize that, that they see this as their superpower, you realize that you're sitting there With two working arms and two working legs and a working brain without a gift that they've been given. And there's a little bit of a jealousy. I can actually, I was together with these guys one time with Kevin where I felt a certain jealousy because I thought to myself, they have several different superpowers in this room here, and I don't have those superpowers. But I will say, which is where this answer came from, um, that. Depression did give me all the great education that uh, that I've needed in life. It taught me about compassion. It taught me about decency. It taught me about kindness. It taught me about um, understanding the suffering of others. It taught me about um, realizing what's important in life. It taught me about love. It taught me about... Um that you cannot appreciate anything that good anything good that happens in life unless bad things happen, if only good things happen, you would never know what a good thing was. It literally would be impossible you can't know day without night, yes, you can't know water without desert i mean it's just so it gave me all the great gifts, but when I was in the midst of it, I not only said I shouldn't have to deal with it, but I actually said. What kind of a god creates a world with this level of pain and considers that a good day's work? So I, I really just yeah. found it just ridiculous the amount yeah. of suffering that's out there. Yes. And it, so that's that's a long answer, but
0: man, that is
2: By the way, thank you for being op oh like honest
0: and open about that because I connect with so many things you're saying so hard. It's just that my um my disabilities and my birth defects, besides my abnormally long legs uh, and ginormous, uh, uncoordinated uh, body. <laughs> outside of that, and being a human version of a giraffe uh, on ice skates in the middle of a basketball court. Outside of that, my birth defects and defects like, are internal that I deal with. And right. it almost makes it, I don't know, I just. it almost makes it harder because people don't see that. And especially when you're in something like entertainment, when you're putting yourself in front of people and you're connecting with people, mm-hmm. it's so, the temptation for me in my entire life has to act like I've got my shit together and present the best part of me. And it wasn't till, God, I'm 35 now and I feel like maybe it was last week, <laughs> not was before that, but like, it's just now that I realize that the truth in what you're saying that's like... We do not connect. Like, what do you want in life? If you, if the goal is to connect with people, you have to realize that we, connection is not made by sharing your wins. You right. can at best find some sort of happiness for someone in their successes. Well, like, but it only happens because of your losses and sharing your like. Yeah, pain. when
2: you when you say you want to come across as having your shit together, okay. There's there's the way that is uh, presented in today's. Extreme version of "I Have My Shit Together" is Tony Robbins. Now, Tony Robbins, to me, is is not an image of a human being. It's 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 an attempt to be uh, 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 who, the, the the German the German Ubermensch. It's an attempt <laughs> to be some freakish yes. Superman yeah. that that is not at all what having your shit together is. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, uh, if you want to see a great movie that helps explain having your shit together, it's um, The Big Kahuna. It was written by David Mamet. It's a film with Danny DeVito and Kevin Spacey and one other guy who I can't remember. It looks like it could have been a great play. It probably was a play. It all takes place in a hotel room. But Danny DeVito instructs a young guy about character. And he says, all character, all great character comes from regrets. And he says, until you learn to regret. And the young guy says to Danny DeVito, he says, you mean to tell me I won't have character until I do a bunch of things that I regret? And DeVito says, DeVito's character says, no, no, I'm saying you already have done a ton of things. You just don't regret them. You should regret them. But you're trying too hard to have your shit together to regret them. And to let yourself have that vulnerability and when you do finally cave and cry and say you fucked up here and messed up here and you'll never get this moment back with this person that you ruined that time. to get. When you have that, then you will have character and it'll tattoo itself all over your face and people who encounter you will have a connection to you and a feel and feel something for you. Kind of like my friend said, looking for that vulnerability when he was looking for friendship. And this young guy just looks at Danny DeVito like, wow, what, I'm getting schooled here in a way I did not plan on today, but it's a lovely moment. It What reminded me of it when you said having your shit together, I, I would say Kevin Kling and those people gathered together with their various disabilities are presenting the image of having your shit together, which is all your exposed vulnerabilities right there before you, and the magic of them actually being transformed into superpowers, human superpowers, superpowers that make you a new kind of superhuman, a super vulnerable person, uh, human, a super um, real human, a, cert, a super uh, um, in touch with dark and deep aspects of life that are part of being human, And so how old are you? 35. Okay, so when I was your age, I hadn't yet had that. So when you're 75, if you come back here and sit here, sadly and unfortunately, you will tell me of great horrors that have happened between 35 and 75, some of them that almost broke you. And um, that's what awaits you. And they're coming, and there's no way around it.
0: See, and even you say that, and I think to myself... 35 is a weird age because it's just old enough to start feeling like you're not young anymore. Like when you're in it at least it's so probably so goofy looking back on when you get to look backwards on that age, but you feel that and you have enough life experiences where you, I, there's almost, I'm already in the middle of it, almost sensing this false sense of experience. Like not to admit, like I have my experiences, but I feel like uh, maybe that's not the false sense of experience. Um, the false sense of being on the other side of it. Like, I feel like, oh, okay, I'm on the other side of it. And so when you say those things, it just is almost so terrifying to think that there's even more on the other side. I know it's true, but it's that conundrum of the human brain that it's impossible for us to, we can look backwards and see how much we've changed in the past 10 years, but we're physically incapable of looking forward and imagining that 10 years from now will be anything different than we are right now with any
2: different right, preferences right right yeah
0: yeah but yeah yeah but you're saying like you come back here and just this sheer amount of like yeah i
2: mean and i'm and i'm hoping uh, it's 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 not too bad like i'm hoping you're not in a car accident and have a traumatic yeah. brain injury but it it's it, it it's going to be things involving loved ones of yours and it's going to be things involving your own career and it's going to be things involving your own health uh damn i just read today did you read that who's that musician he's only in his 30s i don't know the band uh he just revealed within the last 24 hours that he has an inoperable brain tumor do you know what i'm talking no, about i hadn't heard that i haven't the news, the married with a, a kid oh. and a kid on the way, and he's in a band that you know, this is what he does for a living. And it was enough to be a CNN story, so it's probably a band I should know about, yeah. but don't, yeah. And boy, there's there's a curveball, you know, uh, there's one Whoa. coming at you out of the blue, yes, geoblastoma, uh, stage four, can't pull it out, They're, they'll try to treat it, but. You know, odds of that guy being around a couple of years from now very slim. On those, I think I think unfortunately we never take a class between first grade and getting out of high school or even getting out of college of how to how to deal with that. There should be a class that deals with where different people come in and talk to your class about how they dealt with profound curveballs like that in life. Um, I interviewed a death doula recently who works with people in the transition from this life to whatever is after this life but certainly the transition from this to death and um she was talking about how rare it is for people to prepare for that certainly Americans do not prepare to die we don't we don't take a couple classes on it we don't go to hospice and visit with people to learn how they're dealing with it, to help us understand it. We don't learn what is known as the 9, 10, 11 things that every single dying person deals with that are just absolute facts. You will deal with it. We don't even know what those 9, 10, 11 things are. We've never asked because we don't ask. Um, so those are all... And does she have them? She oh, yeah. Yeah, because she went through it. She that. had her husband just come home and say, I've got terminal cancer and... They, neither of them knew what they were doing yeah. going through that process, and now she would handle everything differently. But she talked to a hospice nurse one time, and the hospice nurse who'd been a hospice nurse for 35 years says, I can count on one hand how many people dying have been curious about death, their own death, how they handle their death. Mm. All of them have just continued to do Sudoku in their bed or watch the news saying, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because it's a lot easier than thinking about it. And Gotta then one day, yep. the, they'll pull the cord out of the wall and I won't be here. But otherwise, how about those twins? <laughs> it just isn't yeah. a world in America where when the dying kicks in that we really want to go to the big questions. Um, what is it that the I mean, Bo- Buddhists say? Every single thing you love in life will be ripped from your grasp. So that's just a fact of life. So imagine being told you're 18, it's your high school graduation party, and you say, hey, Bob, what about that commencement speech where the guy said every single thing we're going to go for in this life is ultimately going to be ripped from us, including every single person we love. Ha, ha, ha! a good humor, man, that guy was. And yet he was passing along some pretty important super truths. Super deep, yes. Uh, yeah, that is...
0: Yeah, that is. By the so way, heavy.
2: Vogel and I never talked about any of this shit. You guys didn't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you were, uh, that, that's funny. The uh, I know that's that's so intense. I wonder. Okay, this is what I was gonna. I'm I'm, I'm sitting here blabbering as I'm uh, trying to pull forward the question I was gonna have. Oh, by the way, hmm. how, how often this is? I I'll come back to the question I was just gonna pull forward, but I just experienced something that I've struggled with in conversations like this. What do you do when you experience you have a conversation, they say something mm. really interesting and you don't want to interrupt as the natural conversation goes on, how do you hold on to the or do you hold on to like wanting to come back and talk about that or do you let go and just continue down the river of the conversation knowing that something else will come up? Like where do you find yourself when you're in these kind of conversations? It, do you it,
2: if you can if you can re- recall it It's really, really good to let it go and pick up later. If there's something that you're so sure, if you don't grab it now, you know your brain well enough to know (laughs) you won't get it. It's probably best to risk interrupting and then getting that in and then trying to get that guy back on track Mm, and getting the best of both worlds. My problem is as I get older, if I don't grab that moment when it comes, I might lose it. However, I have learned that if it's in... In a, a poignant moment where uh, the the money quotes are being delivered delivered the ones you will listen to when you play it back and say, "Well, I know what's staying in. I don't know all that I'm throwing out, but I know this is staying in to this this show. This is going to be a big part of the show. I'm glad I let that one stand alone. You hate to walk over that, yeah, uh, but it's you know that's 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 a lesson that took me even. You know, in radio it was live, and I didn't have the opportunity to do what I get to do in podcasting, which is go back and sit and listen and listen and listen again and edit and change and shift. And that listening has really been a lesson for me of, God, it would have been great if you'd have let that guy just go right there instead of jumping in because he said something that really excited you. That's the problem in any conversation. On a patio anywhere in the Twin Cities, the hardest thing about being a good listener is they say that what a good listener does, and I, by the way, am not a good listener, a good listener does not think of the next thing to say while the other guy's talking. I think of the next thing to say all the time. I think of the next thing to say constantly. Well, because you're
0: in charge of keeping this thing going. But what's wrong
2: with a, a little pause after he finishes? While I think of something, why does it have to be like the second he stops, I roll with something? Why don't I let him go and not think about anything at all but his answer? Let that hang there and let seven dead seconds hang while I think of the next thing to say. We don't do that. I don't do that. I bet. No, I, I bet you can find a place in Tibet where conversations <laughs> happen like that. But. Seven
0: seconds. <laughs> uh, it was just seven seconds that goes all- by all the time. But I was just sitting here hanging out with you. But the second you put microphones on, seven he- seconds, and you're aware of it. You're aware of that. You feel every like moment of that silence. Well, yeah. You, so, so you can imagine it, yeah.
2: my minutes of dead <laughs> air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The uh, the tension. One of the great things about dead air on the radio is people at home would feel the tension of that. It'd be palpable. When you're not talking and it's 40 seconds, 60 seconds, 120 seconds, people are going, "Ah, Come on, (laughs) (laughs) on. Missy. This is is hell. This is (laughs) living hell. Yes. And all it is is silence, but it's 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 too much. Yes, it's too much to take. It
0: is. It's like watching a. Uh, it's like going to a, uh, a ten-year-old's piano recital, and you just <laughs> feel it. Like their they're stum- their fingers are stumbling yeah. over things, and you can't help oh, but just yeah. like, I you, the empathy kicks, in. And you just find yourself squirming. Like yeah. why am I squirming? I'm not up there.
2: Yeah, there's a you famous uh, YouTube clip of, uh, is it Udall, this old uh, CBS guy? Was it Morris Udall or, or Roger Mudd? It might have been Roger Mudd. Do you remember Roger Mudd? I, I mean, don't. you don't remember no. him. You're too young. But Roger Mudd was a CBS guy, kind of in the Dan Rather mold. And he was actually related to the mud from the... Hey, Bob, if you do that, your name is Mudd. Oh, yeah, that yeah, quote, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And that was the name of the doctor that worked on uh, uh, John Wilkes Booth. What? Yeah, his That's name was Mudd, and people thought the uh, fact that he helped a guy who had killed the pres- such a great yeah. man like Lincoln, and so your name is Mudd became an insult. Well, Roger Mudd is a relative, distant relative of that guy. Well, Roger Mudd, there's a famous YouTube clip of him asking Ted Kennedy in... 70-something, 1970-something, why do you want to be president? Now, if you're running for president, you got to be ready for that question. Uh, There's other ones that could be curveballs, but that's not. you got to be ready for that one. Why do you want to be? And there's a famous, I don't know what it's, I I may be um, exaggerating, but it's like a 17-second pause. He didn't know, because the answer was, he never wanted to be president, and the mm-hmm. and the honest answer would have been, I, I think I'm supposed to do this. I'm a Kennedy, and I guess kind of we got to do it. But really, I kind of just like women and booze. Yeah. But he uh, and and to be fair, he also liked and was a tremendously effective senator. But he he um he couldn't answer it, and it's known as the thing that torpedoed that campaign. And watching it, I feel profound discomfort in his inability to fill the dead air with something. Yes. Something. I I think I can make America better. I think we can be better than we are now, as great a country as we are. I I have hopes and dreams. My brother Bobby said, and, and give us something, Ted. You know, hell, um, talk about Chappaquiddick, anything, but don't sit there going, <laughs> "President, president, why do I want to be president?" <laughs> what I is that? I don't that? Know. Yeah, that's not so much a curveball
0: as much it is as uh, placing the ball on a tee. Yeah, he and set like, it up for yeah, him, there you are, there you which are. made it all the worse. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah and what's, that's crazy to me that that feeling uh, of like I don't know if it, whatever that discomfort spans. Uh, decades. Like that person, I'm not, You're now you're not even in the room with this person. It's not even that person's <laughs> long gone, but now you're watching this YouTube video, and even, no matter how many times you see it, yeah. you still yeah. feel that. And so, like, it makes me think it has to be something so profoundly like in our DNA as a human, that connection of yeah. watching that. You just can't
2: help but feel that way. Cringe, cringeworthy. cringe worthy. Uh, I, I used to have this happen on the air, especially actually as CCO, less so in my early years. I'd be interviewing a guy, and I'd say, well, one other thing I want to ask you, and then it'd be gone. Mm, it'd disappear. Sure. Yeah. And, uh...
0: Well, that just happened to me. It was like, I got to I pull it forward, and I realize, like, actually, no, I want to talk about this, because this happens to me all the time.
2: So it disappeared So on, yeah. So it disappeared, and so... And this is going to sound really weird, but it would be both horrifying and exhilarating at the same time, because what I would realize... I hate to put it, use this analogy, but guys in combat have said that there's something exhilarating about combat, and you say, wait a minute, guys are trying to kill you. I mean, that sounds like the worst moment of your life. And I think they'd agree it had elements of the worst moment of their okay. life and, weirdly, this strange exhilaration. So the exhilaration was the next couple of moments are either going to be the most embarrassing of my life or I'm going to pull something out of a hat here. But right now, I'm in the in between world of there hasn't been enough time gone by yet where people are going why isn't he asking that question he said he just wanted to ask and yet i've got nothing to fill that and so i would say well the thing i want to ask you is and then this would be what would happen next and either people can relate to this or can't and if they can't i'm feeling very lonely here i'm hoping other radio guys can there wouldn't I wouldn't come up with anything. So what I would do is, and you got to take these seconds into <laughs> okay. now a tenth yeah. of seconds because I'm yes. thinking in, at that speed, yeah. I would be saying to myself, okay, just string the beginning of a sentence together that buys you time to figure out what the end of the sentence will be. So I would say the thing I wanted to ask you, okay, it's gone, Mishki, it's gone, it's gone. You got to keep going. There's dead air right now. Is okay, it's still <laughs> gone, and you're not kind of. <laughs> Why would it be that? <laughs> and now you go, why would it be that? Why did you say that? Why would it now you've boxed yourself in. Now the thing that follows has to be an answer to why would it be that? Why would it be that? Eventually you got to make it something that has to do with the book he wrote. And I would always when it really really mattered get it. Something would fall. It wouldn't be the greatest question in the world, but it would be something that would allow him to go, "Oh yeah, I see what you're saying." And he'd go on, and uh, I'd go Woo-hoo! Oh. Wow! Oh, yeah. That was a blast. Yes, let's never do it again. But
0: woo-hoo! <laughs> you're saying all this. I for, I have the ultimate image of you as a pilot landing the plane through like the <laughs> yeah. hellstorm, and you're like, I've never landed this plane before. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Okay, yeah. uh, where yeah. uh, you're just look, looking at your your uh, your board, and you're like, okay, where's the landing gear? Okay, I got that down, and just I, I got you, you I, landed I, it. I got to tell you a story
2: that happened to me in Uptown that is also in line with this. I'm driving in Uptown and uh, I cross Lake going south on Lindale and I'm daydreaming, which which I do all the time. And it's not good. People say distracted driver. Distra- I'm, I'm constantly a distracted driver. I don't uh. need to text. My life is distracted. So yes. I'm just daydreaming, <laughs> looking up at a leaf and imagining something from my sixth uh, grade class. Or, and A cop in front of me has pulled a guy over, but hasn't pulled him over to the side of the road. He pulled him over in the middle of Lindale. Mm. And he's got his lights on, but I'm not expecting a a, a car to just stop. I had the green light at Lake, and I went through it. But immediately after going through it, there's a cop stopped right there. And I have to hit the brakes, as in screeching to a halt. (laughs) To which he leaves the person he's pulling over to go deal with the freak <laughs> behind him who slanting. just just about took him out, yeah. going 30 miles an hour. <laughs> and he comes back, and I, I got nothing. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? I don't want a ticket. Yeah. And my life has been getting myself into trouble with this mouth and getting myself out of trouble with this mouth. That's been the story of my... 58 years on this earth. Uh, and as it comes, my first thing is, it's very much like these, this sentence I was talking about earlier. I got parts of it. I don't have that whole complete thing. I just decide, Mishki, you're in pain. Something's going on with you. And I right away as he walks up to the window go, ah! Ah! And I'm holding my head. Ah! And I go, I don't know. Sorry, officer. I was right when I was crossing lake, a shot of something sharp in my head. And he's not buying any of it. He goes, do you want me to call you an ambulance right now? No, I don't think I need that. But I'm sorry. Something happened. And I got out of the whole thing. But I was winging it second to second with some weird pain in my head. And as I was saying it, saying, you could have come up with a better one than that. The weird pain thing. First of all, that never happens. What were you eating ice cream or, uh, but anyway, so that that's the same kind of thing in talk radio where thinking on your feet may or may not be something you're good at at any given moment.
0: Oh, uh, that's so good. My, I think for me, like it, I'm just getting, I've gotten in my lifetime so sick of the taste of foot. Finding myself in situations where <laughs> oh if I'm going to yeah. say something about yeah. someone, it'll be the one time they happen to walk right
2: behind me. I tell you the most realize, embarrassing moment oh, yeah. in my life? The most embarrassing moment? I, yes. I was at a party. Yeah. I was 22 years old. Everybody's drinking, having a ball. We're all stupid kids, and I still think of 22 as a kid. Your brain's not fully developed till 25, so before 25, you're a child. And uh, we're all drinking, and some guy comes up to me, and he says... Hey, you have any naked pictures of your mother? <laughs> and I look at him and go, What? <laughs> no. And he goes, Would you like some? <laughs> and I realize, Oh, some goofy 22 year old friend of mine just came up and told me a joke. And it's not a good joke or anything. But <laughs> in my drunken state, I thought, Well, I'm armed with a little bit of humor I didn't have before. And I turn to the person next to me and say, Hey, got any naked pictures of your ma? You want some? And the room goes a little quiet. The yeah. room goes a little quiet because that person's mother had died the night before. Oh. <laughs> and I didn't know that person. We were at a party and it just turned to the oh, next person and it was a random deal and their yes. mother and that I think I had about a, oh I think I had about a seven mile walk home that night at oh. about three in the morning. Just I think I left the party right then. You just but, I still back, every pew, now and then you just wake want up, throw up. Oh, I wake up at three in the morning some nights and still think about it. I, I even think about contacting the person because I don't <laughs> even think I could. I, I I might have been able to pull off. Oh, I'm terribly like, sorry before getting the hell out of there.
0: Uh, there has to be something you could contact that they would understand. Well, they, I like, hope outside. that they
2: learned later in some book that some... it was a real joke. Like maybe they were at Barnes and Noble. Oh, there's that joke that Mishki guy. So that he didn't have naked pictures of my mom after all. Uh, Oh, man, that makes that makes me think of the time I... Uh, I that should make you feel better, first of all. That's, That's what you should be, one be saying one, right is, now. It 100% makes yeah. me feel better because I... I you don't so- have anything quite like that. And believe me, I could start lining up several more like Dude, that oh. over my lifetime.
0: <laughs> That's. I mean, even even here, I mean, that makes me think about... Even this line of things we're talking about actually makes me think of you traveling around Europe in that, of course... I have a million stories I could have told you in this. I think about the conversations you've had with people. And I think about you when you're saying at the very beginning, you're traveling around Europe, you got this microphone, you're walking up to people and just asking them the the funniest, to me, the funniest questions ever. Like where to me, I think about comfort, uh, and I, the, the discomfortable where someone else would be uncomfortable in that situation, like going up to a stranger and just saying that and putting yourself out yeah. there and you on a regular basis sitting down having conversations with people from all walks of life. Obviously, at some point, I mean, you can't live crippled by ever accidentally saying the wrong thing to someone or you'll never have a conversation right, with right, someone. Right, So for you, my so the question where I'm going with this r- spiel is, does that come from... A just a natural uh, comfort in the uncom- where other people would find a discomfort, or is it just a willingness to push through that? And uh,
2: does that make sense? Well, I can tell you this that it, when I'm talking to people, and I'm, I'll, I'll use the term goofing on them, when I am goofing on them, yeah. which I've done all my life and which has been done to me, I, 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 I don't feel anything but love for them. And I want to stress this because there's a show, there's a podcast I did. I think it might be called, it might be titled, God, it's Al. It might be, Al was the guy I was talking to. So I took a series of call, of calls from KSTP from a guy named Al and edited them edited them, to get, edited them together and asked my boss, my former boss at KSTP, who owns all my shows, could I own this little thing, these calls from this guy named Al? Because I want to grab them all and make a podcast out of them. And obviously, once I'm doing that, I own my podcast. So I will yeah. own this. But Al was a special uh, fella. I goofed on him almost to an extreme that is... It, it, hard to believe that a guy could still be as gullible as <laughs> Al was. But I loved Al when I talked to him. And he knew as you, or what was the context no, of what he was No, I was pretending to be another guy. Uh, he called the station asking for the weatherman. And I said, <laughs> well, Dave Dahl is not here right now. I'm the night weatherman. My name's Blow Zephyr. And uh, I am... <laughs> The guy who handles all... Well- oh, I'm so glad because I want to talk to you about tornadoes. And Al turned out to be a guy who almost had a tornado fetish. That's all he wanted to talk about. He le- he had been through four of them in Anoka, and I realized this was the most important and profound topic of his life. And I would see where the boundaries were in terms of his gullibility by telling tornado stories from my own life, many of which were impossible to, po- to believe, but he believed them. I would tell stories about being at St. John's as a student, and we had mini tornadoes that would come into the dorm through the windows, and they weren't the big ones. They were just these little ones. And weirdly, even though stuff got messed up, they didn't have to come in and dust afterward. It would actually be a little cleaner. Mm -hmm. And then I would talk about tornadoes. I knew that would come, and, and they were... I say, you know how tornadoes can sometimes... Do a ton of damage here, but then leave this thing per- perfectly intact. And he knew about that. And I said, Well, I knew one where they left the woman's shirt alone, but they took her bra. So, like, the tornado got the bra, and the woman said, What the hell happened? But my shirt's perfectly intact. And he goes, You're kidding me. That's extraordinary. And then I would tell stories about tornadoes that had, um, uh, what I think? I, I think I told a story about a tornado. Oh, yeah. There were tornadoes that were ridden by the slaves in the 19th century. North. They would catch a tornado in the Texas Panhandle and ride it north to freedom. And, I, and he was on board with all this stuff. <laughs> but as I talked, I fell in love with him as a human being. He was wonderful. He was kind. He was warm. He was gentle. He was sweet. And at the end, this went on for days. He would call every night. And I took all these and edited them together. And they're in one of my Mishki Roadshow podcasts. At the end, when it was all over and I revealed that I had made this all up, not only was he okay with it, but he said, I still just loved talking to you. It's great. And I said, Al, I loved talking to you. You want to sing a song? Yeah, let's sing a song. I said, you, you know any, Al? He goes, well, yeah, I like the auctioneer. We'll sing it. We'll sing the auctioneer. And we sang together. And it was like, everything's okay. We still uh, just had a ball together. Yes. And so there's sort of that where I, I'm not trying to ruin anybody's life. I'm sort of saying... Let's jump out of our chairs at the Guthrie and go up on stage. And let's play up there together on stage. And then afterwards, we'll go back to our seats and we'll laugh about it. I'll tell you what I did that you didn't know. And you tell me what you thought I was doing. And it'll uh. be just fun little thing. And that's sort of the way I approached it all. Just with sort of an, a sense of we're all in this together. Granted, sometimes the people didn't see it that way, and they might get a little upset with me, but it was never done with malice.
0: Oh, my gosh. In 2020, right, like in the global conversation we're having about conversation, how we talk, the words we can use, uh, how we should uh, talk about each other, to each other, the language we have... The thing I'm not hearing, which to me is the most important, is context. Like what is behind. Like the like you're saying. Like there's no malice in it. Like if someone can feel that you are not laughing at them, it's not their expense, and that we're in this together, and you can turn it where we're on the same side of the table of life together, and they feel that. Like there's no there's it's the threshold of mistakes of language and things you could say or. Poor jokes you could accidentally right, tell right. is so much higher that people and people understand
2: that. And yeah, I, giving I like people the, the, benefit the, the benefit of the benefit of the doubt, of the doubt yes. is important. And I always, I always, uh, in this politically charged era, I always tell people, I don't need to know your political affiliation, and I don't need to know who you're voting for, but just promise me that the motivation behind your political views or who you're voting for is kindness for other human beings. I can believe that you could make an argument on both sides of the aisle for what is the kindest thing to do in this certain situation and you would have a disagreement on what should be done but each person would believe the kindest thing to do would be this. So I I, I believe in disagreement and I believe it can come from uh, altruistic motivation. But I want to know that that's at your core. I want to know that what you really want for the world is for people to be happy and and you want the best for people and you want to treat people well and that the way you do that is... Well, the Republican comes along and says, you give them more freedom. They need more freedom, less less government control. That's how, you, that's how you're kind. And in that freedom, you give them the gift of the ability to create their own life. Mm-hmm. And that's a wonderful gift. And the Democrat comes along and says, yes, 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 yes. Often that works, but there are many times in which uh, they need the help of the government and it makes their life better. And in these instances, that involvement is the most kind thing to do. And the two argue, and that argument is coming out of that beautiful, beautiful, Uh, sense of, we want what's best for everybody. What I see too often happening is those arguments are not coming out of that at all. They're coming out of more, when you see a boxing match, they're not thinking about kindness, they're thinking about who's going to win. It's about, I want to win. I want to win here. And winning is its own goal. And what gets lost is, Remember that thing that got you into this in the first place? You wanted a better world and you wanted a better society and you wanted to, you know, maybe your parents had something happen that motivated you. They lost their farm or something. Don't lose that in the mix of this game of who's going to win and how do we win and how we get the other guy and the other side we got to beat them and it's a zero-sum game. I mean, that's what bothers me.
0: How do you? man how do you stay in this thing like i do not we're i consider us i'm uh mention this in a minute i'll go into this a, a little bit more in a minute but i feel like such a kindred colleague to you in curiosity mm-hmm. not not in the sense of podcasting audio stuff like that the, i don't be So far beyond me in that But I feel so kindred to you Like as a colleague In curiosity And ki- and wanting to connect with people mm-hmm. And hear people's stories And I hear things about you Talking about like Like the love of like Like the how happy you'd be If you could just be invited To everyone's attic Right, and, see right. Some, and I'm like Oh man you're reading my mail This is Maybe weird to say this to you But as I was kind of Looking through And like Not doing necessarily A ton of research on this But like pulling up some articles Hearing some other interviews Yeah with yeah, man, I pulled up a couple interviews that I actually, I, and I guess the only way I could equate it was, have you, have you ever heard stories of someone getting a deep tissue massage? Yeah, mm-hmm. and like so deep, and it releases so many things that they start crying. Yeah, yeah. dude, I was reading, uh, I was reading an interview that it's for some Minnesota publication with you, and you were mentioning your outlook on people and the connection and curiosity. And it was like I got a mental deep tissue massage <laughs> and I found myself in the same article laughing, literally laughing out my loud. My wife's like, what the hell are you reading? Because like your answers to it. And then at the same time, I found myself at one time like almost like actually tearing up. Right. Because I felt like, oh, like I'm not alone. And like the way like your desire to connect with people and hear people's stories and the way like this feeling that the more different someone is than you, right. the more you want to have a conversation with them. Right, and I have been over this past damn year feeling like I'm on crazy pills because I feel like I'm just, I feel like I'm in a world not made for me. Sometimes, And right. that I just am so wanting to have conversations with people, and instead of trying to convince them of something want to see like oh what led you to feeling this way right. and do this and so hearing like you my buddy actually it was after i started doing this podcast my buddy jasper uh who i toured with a ton he uh he was like well dude you he started listening to my show he's like dude you know there's someone that's been that's like the, the that's already doing this to the nines like you need to be listening uh, to td mishki And that's what turned me on like after I'm doing this. And so it's been so cool to like see, like hear you from the perspective of like, oh, I've already like made some of these mistakes and hearing what you're doing. What keeps you, what keeps you focused on not going down the zero sum game of life? Like what keeps you in like your conversations with people or your outlook on the world? What keeps you on like? you're talking about the Democrat and Republican side of like the it's beautiful when we're coming at it from the same love of people and we want the same thing instead of the wanting to win. Mm -hmm. And in a world of patent, like I just in the world of like creating things, I feel like the same thing can happen where it's like easy to get lost in like wanting to win more than you want, like to have this connection or make something beautiful. Like what keeps you, uh, focused on what needs
2: to be focused on does that to, make sense yeah no, that's I, like an hour long asking. freaking I montage. Know, <laughs> I, I know what you're asking i used to play a game with myself that helped me answer that where i would lie in bed and i would try to create such a powerful sense that i was on my deathbed that i almost believed it, that I almost believed it. So I would tell myself, you have this illness, and it's this late in the game, you've lived a long life, and you're not even in your house here. You're in a hospice facility or you're in a nursing home, and uh, these are breaths that are precious and we're coming near the end. And now, with as much of that as you can believe, now, in this moment, think about what life is, What's important? Mm. Uh, what the value of a moment is? What you want to say? And don't and, the
0: Stoics call that like memento mori?
2: Yeah, like the meditation of death. It's of a that it's a wonderful to die, thing yeah. to do. And and one of the things that came out of this there have been many things, but over the years one of them one of them was that's it's the reason I'm living where I am right now. Why I'm living in St. Paul. Um, one of the answers over the years that came was I realized not one thing I'll think about on my deathbed, not one thing will be, I won't think about a lake or a mountain. I won't think about a flower. I won't think about a vibrant town or a uh, beautiful foreign city. I will think about human relationships. And so right away what became clear to me is the most important thing in life, obviously, is human relationships. That's, That's key. So, you can be sitting right now with a glass of wine in Sonoma Valley just in awe of what you're looking at, and that's great, but if you're deciding where you're going to live, you better be where you connect most powerfully and profoundly and poignantly with people, and that's here for me. So that's why I'm here. But other answers come, like, oh, come from so, that too, like answers such as so beautiful. no matter what's going on in the world, no matter how horrible it is, no matter how horrible it is, it has been worse. And when it's been worse, it's been worse than that. And when it's been worse than that, it's even been worse than that. And the story of our time on this earth is a pretty rough story. So rather than say, oh, my God, in this chaos in these times, you know, how do you make it? It's better to say, that is earth. That has been the story. And if you want to go back to the Spanish Inquisition, or you want to be, you know, a gay male wondering how you're going to live your life in 1954 in America, or if you want to go back and say, what am I going to do? Uh, You know, I'm a a five-year-old child working in the fields in 1933 in the Deep South and the Delta, picking cotton 12 hours a day, and no one thinks that's odd. I'm five years old, and I'm going to work a 12-hour day in 110-degree heat. I mean, you can go back and back and back and find Horror show after horror show you could be a woman living anywhere and you know routinely just grabbed and raped and that's perfectly okay and that's been going on for eons and just go just go through and realize no 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 no. Don't sit around saying, Well, oh, it's kinda rough right now. This is the planet that it oh it's it is it's not showing a new face. You just have been in La La yes. Land. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a small little chunk of the world where you can get a good run with a pretty easy life. Otherwise, life is hard. You better make peace with that early on and figure figure out: Are you going to help out that horror show, or are you going to add to it? And really, it's 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 sort of grow up time for people. I, I don't I don't think sitting around lamenting things is you know talk to Jews during the holocaust you know oh, it's really tough in 19 uh, in 2020 and then yeah. you got this trump guy you know i i just i just think you you have to realize that is it's not an unusual part of life it is life and it'll get better again and then it'll get worse again yes. way worse again and then it'll get better again and you just got to ride this wave And be the best person you can be within that and periodically try to get away from the thoughts that go round and round and round every day, 80% of which are negative and 80% of which repeat from the day before. And instead, look around as we look here and say, my God, is this about the most gorgeous set of leaves you've seen in your life and isn't that blue sky amazing and the way the light's coming through those trees and how do I get to breathe this crisp, cool, lovely air, and uh I don't happen to be in pain right now. I could have something that causes pain. I don't have any right now. And I'm talking to someone and we're having an enjoyable time and I just sipped a glass of wine. I think I won the lottery here. Oh. Yes.
0: Oh man, see it's shit like this, man. I've like you say that and I go, oh, Yes, like I feel just such like a connect. Oh yes, Minneapolis lowered the Mississippi River lower than it's been I in 12 years. I just heard that and saw some pictures. Oh, yeah, that was, it was cool. Gorgeous. Yeah, I, I, I wish oh, I would have gone down there. For it was that. so cool, and we, my wife and I, walked down there, and it was a gorgeous like day like this, and it's beautiful, sunny, and as we were walking up, I, um, we passed a woman. Oh, I didn't even think that that's probably what brought it to mind. We passed a woman who was in her late 80s, had to be, and she was holding the stairs and she was with someone younger helping her up, having a hard time, and we passed them getting up these really crazy steep stairs. And I turned to Sarah once we got up and I said, this sounds really weird, but I think... We should think about our knees right now, and like think about think about how your knees feel. Right. She's like, You're such a weirdo. And I go, no, look, listen, like we just walked up all these stairs, and like right now we should just appreciate it. our knees don't hurt. Like that's not gonna be around forever. At right. some point the knees are gonna go, right. but right now. Like, we're a little winded, and that's it. Yeah. Like, we should be, like, like I if I really could embrace that feeling, I would want to go run a marathon right. just to celebrate right now. Right. Instead of thinking about all the shit that's going down yeah. with COVID. You know what I mean? <laughs> Instead of, like, I go to straight back to the poor me. Oh, that's such a hard time. And, the, like, the mantra for us in our house has been, just the two of us, like, is I've been saying, like, this is our World War II. And not yeah. to take that down, but, like, right. How could you even talk about a pandemic without acknowledging is this the first time this has happened in the world? Right. Like it's just the the real sad thing is that this isn't unifying us as a country. Right, right. Like a, like a, something else that like a pandemic or something has where we don't feel closer to each and every one of our neighbors because of it.
2: But That's weirdly you even thing. want to be careful though, though there though because it unites some. So like right now sure. okay, eight yeah, blocks from yeah. where we are right now there's a little there's a little tent city. Yeah. And this neighborhood that I live in has formed a Facebook page where we all gather to learn uh, what did you find out over there? What do they need? What do they need? Okay, they need uh, the women need the feminine products, and some of them are asking for a Target card, if you give them a Target card. This guy here needs a decent sleeping bag. And, and then, oh, I got one. I got an extra one in the basement. And, uh, and we're going to have a potluck with them this Sunday, you know, just kind of meet the neighbor thing. This is a homeless tent oh. city that has formed since the summer. So th- within the not getting along and within the tension and within the chaos, there are also... Stories of community, so it's it's never one mm. one thing you gotta you know even to say yeah. America is divided, I mean I could go right now to all my neighbors, and none of us would say we're divided from each other. I don't know yeah. where everyone stands politically, but I know that if I need them, they're here. So I don't oh, I don't so know I know we're divided. I know we're divided, but we're also not divided. The opposite is almost always true whenever you make any statement.
0: I could not agree with that more. And I wonder does that do you think I mean, it's so fun to talk about talking with this. Like, podcast is so absurd to me sometimes. (laughs) To ask this question, I'm about to ask. But do you think that mindset of yours comes from years of uh, like sitting down with so many people and having conversations that you record, or just in the ones you didn't? But with the goal of trying to, like, that's the goal,
2: right? To find like okay, build rapport with someone as quick as possible, maybe so that they'll open up, and to see the variety of human presentation and realize that there is no one way to live. And and okay. you know I think I think growing up, I think a lot of parents would have told my friends and I this is the way you live. And the older I get, uh, I think that there's so many different ways to live. I I do prefer to see that common denominator of a general heart at the center of it and a kindness. But there are so many ways to get through this existence and to present a human life and so many ways to go through trauma and so many ways to to come out of trauma i i am in awe from my years of talking to people. uh, I'm in awe of humanity the way a botanist is in awe of plants. And he has a greenhouse. He walks through and says, Mm. oh, look at that plant. Look at that plant. Look at that plant. I would walk through and go, look at that life. Look at that life. Look at that life. And even, you know, lives that would never make a magazine article or would never make a book, but are just profound in their own way. And just the way people get through the the gauntlet that is presented when you're born. I mean, from the beginning, when you're going down a birth canal, there is your metaphor right there. That doesn't sound fun. You are leaving Shangri-La. Yeah. And you are coming down this tunnel forced against your will into some world that you will be coughing and gagging and trying to breathe and eventually crying. Welcome to life. That is where we start. And then it gets hard. So... I, I think I'm. I think I think of human lives as heroic, all of them, all of them. Even the guys that fail miserably and end up doing life in in Stillwater, uh, because I don't know that given the same set of ingredients and DNA that I would have done any different.
0: I'm, okay, so help help me get there with you. I was actually thinking almost the opposite of what you just said. Where I go, my thing is to look for okay, like where are we the same? Like where like where yeah. are the the biggest helpful thing for me in that conversation is like, okay, where are like our common interests? And let's talk about
2: that. Like, where are we unique? I do go 180 degrees the other way. I like the thing where they say something. Wow. We are on other planets from one another. Wow. You, you're, you're into what? And you just said, what? And you think what? That is. And, and because in that moment, what I realize is I'm not the smart one and they're the idiot. There are two different ways of operating here and this guy is operating this way and I, I marvel. I use this word way too much but my ideal way to handle an interview is to marvel at what I'm encountering with no understanding necessarily of it but simply marveling at its otherworldliness and at yet another presentation of a human life that is not like mine and just sitting back and being okay with the mystery of that, the utter mystery of it. Uh, I think the older I get, the more I don't have any answers for anything, but the more I go, my God, it sure is a better day because I encountered that, even though I don't know what to make of what I just uh, encountered. That guy just said, what? And he thinks, what? And in his basement, he has a... Hundred thousand worm collection. One guy I interviewed. He's got a hundred thousand worms in his basement, and he just loves worms. He finds them each unique in their own way, and all hundred thousand of them. And he's with them in the basement, looking at them. And I we're not going to connect on that. All I can do is sit back and say, well, I'm not going to meet another another one of him. That's it. That's it. Or the woman I met who um, adopted a kid with 87 birth defects and she wanted the kid with 87 birth defects, not the kid with only 22. I can't I can't get there. I can't get into that level of compassion and that level of I want to take on the greatest challenge any mother could ever take on and have it be as extreme as possible. Why? Why? And and you know and she'll say because if I don't who will and you know and then you sit back and marvel at that and yeah. man I, I'm with you I, I, I'm with you on that like I feel like in my every so what do you say day- what do you well, say though is- you can't say well I'm you're like me you're not gonna say you're like me those worms I, yeah, that woman yeah you, they're not like you unless yeah. you're uh, also some yeah superhuman I so I, say, I don't know what it I is I constantly don't connect as much as I. I mean, this is the level I connect on. We're all human. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're made up of the same stuff, more or less. But the different ways that stuff creates a human life is wild to me. And if you grow up in just a small town in northern Minnesota, you're only going to see about nine presentations of that life. And I'm saying <laughs> oh, there are yes. infinite number. And the yes. more I've traveled and the more I've encountered, the more I've realized, well, just, just how many ways are there to be a person?
0: <sighs> yes. Oh man, see, I, I, where man, what's what is it? I think I'm trying to get to the core of what is it within me that I'm. Uh, maybe in this media, I think it's just the medium because I th- I feel like I have that in life, and I've told Sarah like we've done, we'll go and I love nerd documentaries. I'm a <laughs> junkie for like any fringe, any fringe uh, like people group people. If you're into. I don't know. Chupacabra. I make le- yeah. I make Legos and I'm, I'm I and I marry them and I'm <laughs> uh, romantically involved. I'm I see that and I go. I could ne- I'll never be that, but I'm so glad you exist. I'm right, so glad right. that someone exists yeah. doing this or like right. the the uh, uh, the Pac Man world champion. I would right. never spend time doing that, but I'm glad right. that exists. But for some reason in this podcast uh, medium and i'm trying to like what the hurdle i'm getting over and the, the question that keeps coming to my mind is is this interesting to other people like am i just a weirdo
2: that well you know the answer to that get to get question to the, is, the answer to that question is and i hate to use this analogy because it's going to be horrible but uh hang with me so in the 1980s yeah. a guy came along named rush limbaugh and he did something that everybody told him was career suicide, which was a talk show on politics. There weren't talk shows on politics. Talk shows were supposed to be entertaining. You interviewed this book author. You talked about. Uh, you didn't. You didn't have an axe to grind, and you didn't uh, have a political ideology that you wanted to push. But what was learned from that was he was so passionate that his passion became contagious. He made people interested because he was interested. Now, I would have been a happier man if he never came along, but I'll take this lesson that he taught, which is (laughs) you care about something deeply, and you reveal that passion and reveal how much you care about it in your show, and it will attract people with the, the the charisma of your own passion for something, you don't ask yourself the question, I don't know if they'll like it, but I really like it. But you also don't do the bullshit line, I don't care if they like it. All I care about is what I want to do with my life. Of course you care if they like it. In fact, it's going to be miserable if they don't. But you you trust that if you as a human being with all your cells and every molecule working in the direction of this thing you love, if that can be part of you and your makeup and we're made up of the same things, other people are going to also be excited about it and appreciate living through you and, and experiencing what you experience as you move around and interview these people. And that will happen. That will happen if you're never faking it, if it's real, it will be contagious. And that's been something learned so never, um, never believe anything like, um, well, I c- that's not a popular thing to do. Or uh, we've learned you can't do that's box office poison. Don't do that. I used to book music at a club, and the line used to be no bluegrass. Bluegrass is box office poison. <laughs> yeah. You know, with yeah. anything but bluegrass. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a there's a point at which you got to be careful about that, and instead say, wow, that guy playing that bluegrass right there is so in love in this moment with the moment and with what he's doing and with the sound he's making and his dedication to it is so beautiful. I'm right now having an experience with a a genre I didn't expect to like Mm -hmm. or to have this experience with. So you just have to trust that that's happening. Now you may tell yourself, what number do you consider a successful audience and what number do you say, well, that's not enough. I I must be doing something wrong. And that's a rough game. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I will say that uh, when I booked that music club, it sat 80 people. And one night, a friend of Bob Dylan's played there, a childhood friend. And he called Bob Dylan afterward and Bob said, how was the gig? And he said, wow, this place, it was sold out, but the place only seats 80. And Bob said, Sold out, sold out. Sold out is sold out. You sold the place out. Oh. You you don't know if there were another ten who wanted to come in and couldn't, another thirty who wanted to come in and couldn't. You sold the place out. That's as good as it gets. That's 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 oh. success right there. Yes. And so that eighty was as good as it got for that guy that night. Yeah. And I think Dylan was right. Um and I think you have to think of a classroom. Teacher gets up, 33 kids. When I was in grade school, 33 kids. This teacher is magical. Everyone loves her. She delivers this incredible lesson. We all go home, and 40 years later, we still talk about her when we get together. Remember that woman? What a teacher she was. Her audience was 33. 33. Uh, It was a full classroom. I guess that's a sellout. It wasn't 33,000. Yeah. So somewhere along the line, you have to make peace with what number of people appreciating what you do. You're going to sleep well knowing about and what number you're going to feel bad about. And I don't know how to tell you to find that number. But for me, I ended up deciding that um, if, do you, how do you, do you have advertising on this show?
0: I haven't yet. Okay. I've, been, I've just gotten to
2: the point where I'd like to. This so just I have like advertising. A, yeah. And so my thing was, if Junior's. my advertiser my advertisers are getting business. Yeah which they are, and they tell, report, back. oh yeah, we're, we're doing well off your show. Thank. Okay, then I don't, I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore because oh, in order for me to do it for a living, I need to have advertising. And so, in order for them to want to advertise, they need the listeners to follow through. If the game's being played, if the whole theatrical game is being played, <laughs> if everybody's happy, yeah. then it doesn't matter to me. So that's where I find my peace with it. Um, I don't know where I'd find it Otherwise, but that's how I, that's how oh. I found it with this.
0: Yeah, that is, that is so cool. Yeah, I'm, I just, it's that, I mean, even like we said earlier, it's the, just the voices that come back, the voices that come back for me of that want to pull me away. Like it's, yeah, it's those voices of, of knowing, is this the resistance or is this wisdom Saying it's time to, this has been a good run to do something. It's the voices, constant, constant voices that you have to.
2: Well, to go I back to, to uh, Walt Whitman and sending out uh, the web and seeing if it would stick here, stick there, um, what he was speaking to was the anxiety, the anxiety now, that all artists feel yeah. who produce something and wonder is A, is this their time? Or are you going to be somebody who, boy, you know, you would have been really good 10 years ago or 10 years from now? Or is it going to be, you know what, I'm just not connecting with people. I don't know why. It's not working. It doesn't mean I'm doing it wrong, but it's not happening. I'm going to move on and try something else without kicking yourself over it. Yeah. Uh, But but the anxiety you're talking about is universal with all artists. Everybody feels it. And imagine the anxiety with the big shots who have ridden to the mountaintop, and then they have, you know, because they say every, say, if you take pop music, Mm -hmm. everybody has about a seven-year run of real creative brilliance, but then they have a life that's 75 years. So imagine having to come down off the mountain and just be a regular schlub you know Sean Phillips, a guy I used to listen to when I was a kid. He's a volunteer fireman in Texas right now. You know he used to be a guy that, you know, he, he had the masses in the palm of his hands with his music, and he he just, you know, I'm sure the women were knocking on his door, and he was the toast of the town whenever he played. And he's in a tiny town in Texas as a volunteer fireman, and and you could go you could go on and on. You got to make peace at some point with a moving on mm. and or be deciding you know people don't like what i do as much as they used to but this is what i do no yeah. and there's that whole what am i put on this earth to do question that you got to answer to, which i think is a real i think there is an answer to that question people say what do you mean i don't think we are put on this earth well i think there is something i think I, I think there is something you're supposed to be doing and when you find it it's like you're in a river you can just kick back throw the paddles out and just roll down the river my wife has that it's it's called a calling yeah. I don't happen to have it yet. I'm still looking for it. So I'm saying this knowing that I've spent my life looking for it. A great job is not the same as a calling. A calling is, <laughs> oh,
0: that's, that is not is, the same. That's good, yeah. And, uh, that's heavy, yeah. But it's
2: when you're doing something where you just say every, you know, when Churchill got to World War II, he said, every moment of my life from birth till now, has been preparing me for this. This is what I was put on this earth to do. Take this country through this four-year, five-year period. This. He was already an old man, but so he was waiting, 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 and there, there was yeah. your moment. And and I, I think that's a lot. I, that may be, some people might find that a little too much, but I believe we have those moments where we are in the river where we were born to be, and it might not be... For more than those seven years or less, but uh, you know it when you're there. And I would always hope it would be later. I always hope. I always loved people. I always thought Dylan becoming famous at 20 was pretty rough. I liked Bonnie Raitt's later, later yes. fame. You're more yeah. grounded than or Norman Maclean, the writer of A River Runs Through It. You don't write a novel till you're 80, and then that's that uh, masterpiece. Yes. I mean, that's the way it should be.
0: I yeah, I really connect with that. I love that. And I think as you're saying this, I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, yes, I 100% agree with that. And I, I believe that. And even the the calling side of it, to me, the analogy always was like, like if humanity is this stringed instrument and that is like, and sometimes I wonder if, you know, sometimes when we talk about God, mm-hmm. sometimes I wonder if God is like this, the A440 of the universe. <laughs> and like, we are all like the universe, we are all right. people a stringed instrument and that you are the harmony you can make with other people is when you are tuned to your specific frequency. Like you're supposed to be an A sharp.
2: Yeah. Like I wonder. So think about that. If you think about that for a moment, I mentioned earlier, I wish I could find who it is, this 32 year old professional musician who's got the brain tumor. Yeah. What if, what if the role he was brought on this earth to play is to get millions of people right now, looking at CNN and learning about this to question what the hell they're doing with their life because it can end that quickly and it and that could be you getting that phone call from your doctor saying we found this geoplastoma of stage four. I mean, what if his role is a giant tutor to the rest of us to wake up and that was what his life was going to be about and he is actually playing... This His note of this giant instrument, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't know if you think of it more as, oh, as, yeah. as the masses yep. being in one giant play, maybe you're, maybe you're exactly where you're supposed to be doing exactly what you're supposed to do. And you were supposed to come here today. And I was supposed to have this conversation and this conversation is going to change what I do with the rest of my day. And it's going to alter what I think about tonight and so on and so forth. I don't know. I love thinking about these things. They're all grand mysteries and philosophers have done better jobs with it than I'm doing, but I do love the I love the fodder and I never tire of thinking about it. I don't consider it a waste of time, even though I'll I'll not come up with the final answer. If you're gonna stare at a blue sky on these autumn leaves on an October day, there are worse things to think about. Oh
0: my gosh. And it's it so totally comes across even being here and having this conversation or even listening to your stuff. It's the enjoyment of the playground of yeah. it, like we don't have to uh, the, the enjoyment of like playing around this and like holding these ideas and throwing them back and forth is so enjoyable, and I can I can tell it's just like a uh, enjoyment for you even. It's so fun to like enter into.
2: I heard Kurt Vonnegut's quote two days ago. I'd never heard this one before. He said, "People are on this earth to fart around." <laughs> <laughs> that was his take. That's, a, so yeah. that's another yeah. approach. <laughs> uh, oh, that's so good.
0: Yes. Okay, I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to end it. I, I want to end this with uh, I'm going to narrow down the bajillion questions I have to, uh, to something. I'm going to pull up a note. I was listening to, I was driving and listening to a fantasy novel for fun uh-huh. uh, yeah. uh, this week. And I was writing down, I wrote down a quote and I had no idea why I wrote this down. But then as I was coming here today, it came to my mind. And the quote is, All stories are true, but this one really happened, if that's what you mean. You have to be a bit of a liar to tell a story the right way. Too much truth confuses the facts. (laughs) Too much honesty makes you sound insincere.
2: Yeah, I agree with all that, and that certainly has been my approach. Uh, There's another great quote by a writer named Simon Ortiz that ties into it. His, His quote is, there is no truth. There are only stories. The idea being that every story you hear can't really tell the truth. The truth is such a... I mean, just think of anything that you could tell from your life. We could go back, and you could be telling it in as truthful a way as you thought you possibly could, and we would learn later the 19 other perspectives that saw it completely differently. Yes. So there, his point was there are only stories. All we have a, is... Our, our stories, we aim for a kind of truth because we don't want to completely make life a fiction either, but we ought not be married so much to the idea that there is, in fact, this one truth that w- I will argue there may be a truth, but the idea that each of us have access to it, I don't think so. We have, we have a facet here we can lay out pretty clearly, and we have an insight there, but the truth is a, such a a monster to get your arms around in anything in a, in a moment in a grocery store where it was robbed. How many movies have been made where the nine perspectives of the customers in there were wildly different. And you know, the motivation of the guy who did it was different. A cop said one thing, their parents, another, the guy said something else. His parole officer later would say there was a different thing going on. Uh, so I, I do, I do believe that when I have talked on the radio or on my podcast and I've been revealing some quote unquote truth um embellishment and having some fun with it or some artistic license is all part of the game mm. and no one is going to punish you for that uh You're not on a witness stand in a court of law you're you're trying to just help people get through you know this Ugh. this gauntlet. So I, I'm a big I'm a big fan of that uh, quote you delivered. I and I like Simon Ortiz quote, and I like truth being a little bit uh, something that we don't worry about so much unless it comes to, you know, that moment on the stand or that moment where someone's life depends on it. Yes, now that is and that is what
0: this conversation is. Like if we're talking again like that, this conversation, that mental deep tissue massage for me, which is that just releasing into the, the need, releasing my need sometimes to look for like, go out, like find the truth of it. And instead, like, like maybe search after my own delight in the story or like not get so hung up in the truth of it. And I just can't help but think of your, I mean, the story I found, I heard somewhere of your, your bus story that you did with like was it city pages Oh my god well
2: now if you go down that road where well, you're going to see talk about playing with the truth when I was at city pages I made up my columns and I was and and as a columnist you know that that goes against every Every journalistic <laughs> rule at the very out. at the very least at the end you should yeah, yeah. reveal you made it up, but I wouldn't yeah. even do that. I'd even include a picture of the person who doesn't exist that I made <laughs> up, and the <laughs> editors were on board with that, and i'd have you and know they knew, they they knew, this knew. Made up. okay and uh so you know I don't know if you heard this, but um, Katie Couric's a producer called me wanting to have a person on who I wrote about and I said, well, I, I made that up, that person. Because the no, story is, I mean, this was the thing I laughed
0: at of one of the things I the laughed The bus about. one? The bus one.
2: Yeah, You wrote that guy... It was hard economic times. I think it was after Obama first took office and things were tough economically and there was a guy who, just to help people out, took his dad. His dad had refurbished an old 1950s city bus, metro bus in the Twin Cities and the Guy took it, young guy took it, and he drove around pulling up to bus stops, picking people up, and them saying, well, this doesn't look like my regular bus, That's not, but just tell me where you want to go, I'll take you there, and here he opened up a cooler, he'd give them something to drink, and they'd have sing-alongs, and he had kind of a boombox he'd play if they didn't want to sing-along, and he'd drive them wherever they wanted to go, and he was just being a nice guy in tough times. And it was a feel-good story that had Oprah's people calling me, Katie Kirk's people calling me, the people who do the story, NPR, National Public Radio, the story, oh, they my gosh. called me. And when I would tell them, I made it up. The anger oh. that I... And it, and it wasn't genuine just anger. anger. Like genuine actually, anger. Oh. They went to my editor, uh, Kevin Hoffman, at uh, City Pages and demanded I be fired <laughs> because I had oh, broken no. all the oh, rules no. of journalism. Oh, yeah. You know. But I do want to say in my own defense, people that every now and then I also was honest. And I, uh, I did write the obituary column for uh, Mikey Larson, Idea, the great performer. And uh, one of the proudest moments, I started this interview saying that I thought I was going to be a writer, wanted to be a writer. My dad was a newspaper man, and I had respect for the written word but not the spoken word. And I wrote that column for Mikey Larson. Every word of it was true, and I won the best column of the year by the Minnesota journalism society. And I didn't make that one up. So I, I didn't, I never took accolades. I never took awards for bullshit stories. Yes. So I wanted to be known that, <laughs> but yeah, I made up a lot of, I mean, I made up a story about a guy. It was called a uh, death radio. It was in Oregon, a guy got people who in their last weeks in hospice to do radio shows. Now, they could only do it for a few weeks because then they died. But mm. everybody doing a show was in their last weeks of life. And it was a full day you could listen to. You know, some people would die during the show, and that was unfortunate. But uh, in general, you were hearing people who had this great perspective on life because they were in the final days of their existence, and this entire station would only hire people who were just about to kick the bucket. Yeah. Now, I found an old guy in Anoka who agreed to lie in his bed next to his 14 prescription... He was on 14 prescription drugs. Let me stack them around him. Let me have a breathing thing by him, which he actually did at. He had an oxygen deal, and he was also a good sport, and he let me take his picture, and that was the picture, and then I put a microphone by him, and this guy has the show noon to two. And I did this whole column, and it was all made up. And that, too, had people calling, going, well, this is extraordinary. Where's yeah. this Oregon radio station? It doesn't exist. Well, what kind of a sick, twisted freak are you? And I would ask myself sometimes, what kind of a sick twist? Why am I making it up? What is my problem? I don't, I, I, I guess I could only say it was, it was fun. It yes. was just fun. I was just having fun uh, and I came out of radio. So when they gave me the column at City Pages, they knew I was a nutcase. So they just kind of let me be a nutcase. And uh and then every now and then I'd write a real column too. Yeah.
0: I that I get so much like it's man, there is so much value to life and permission. Like you see <laughs> someone else doing it before you or like yeah. or, they, or like like oh, Oh, you're allowed, like the first person that runs a certain way, like, I don't know, throws a ball a certain way. And no one's done it before. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I could do that too. Or you do whatever the circumstance is. And I feel, and and with this maybe, is that I just feel so much permission from you. And I just feel like to chase my delight and find the conversations and trust not in in the conversations not like feel like i have to steer them but like like be okay with the silence and let yeah. them let that river go where it's supposed to go yeah. and stumble on it and
2: carl jung said ask yourself what a good day was when you were a little kid what was a good day and then that should give you the insight on what you should be doing right now thank you
0: thank you not only like this this time is a personal gift to me and I think that I everybody listens to. You. Thank you for taking the time to do this, uh, and for the things you've made for me. It's just it, it's it, I've found so much value after discovering it. I appreciate that. I, f- I do feel like I I have this term I call virtual mentors, and you have become a virtual uh, like curiosity mentor of mine of like question asking and like listening to that voice mm-hmm. and like following your own curiosity. And also, I'm really pumped about this. We have a map right there on the front of the website that shows all the locations that these interviews and conversations have taken place. If you've heard something you like and you want to go check it out for yourself, that's right there. Or you can just check it out at thecuriouspod.com slash map or just right there on the front of the website. I'll show... I'll show... (laughs) Also, if you want to reach out to me on social media or follow me anywhere, pretty much everything online is the Rob Morgan at the Rob Morgan. Whatever you you you, you know the drill. All right, enough of that nonsense. All this podcasting has made me thirsty. You know, <laughs> I am so pumped that I do not have to deal with sponsors for this podcast, or else I'd have to tell you podcasting makes me thirsty and nothing quenches a podcast thirst whether you're listening uh, interviewing editing recording listening to something unrelated to a podcast nothing quenches a thirst like a guinness hey Hofi, can i steal you for a second do you have anything you want to say about guinness
1: i'd like to take a minute to thank guinness because it truly is made of more that's all all
0: right that's it thanks <laughs> uh, i love that crap all right have a great week See you next Tuesday. Anything else? Thanks for being here. (laughs) (laughs) I got nothing. Say the most random thing you can think of. Yell it. I got
1: nothing. The only word I can think of is formaldehyde.
0: (laughs) Perfect.